Hi everybody, I'm Robert Cather and you're listening to Logo Sophia, a program where I try to learn something from my guests and hopefully you can too. Here we are. Howdy. Back, back from, <laughs> <laughs> back from break. It's great. Oh, we still have a few hours, even though it's all going to be filled with homework for me. So, you know. What kind of homework do they give you when you're an actor? Oh, God. Uh, well, so there's a lot of reading plays just to get familiar with them, get used to uh, just getting what you can from it, starting, starting uh, doing the work and not really doing all of it just yet, but just kind of laying the groundwork so that when you're in class and uh, the professor gives a note, it's not... Uh, it's not like, oh, I have to just totally every, rethink everything. It's kind of just laying the groundwork and getting things started, um, memorizing the play that I'm going to get started with uh, tomorrow in rehearsals. What play is that? Glenn Gary Glenn Ross oh, by man. David Mamet. You get to be in Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Yeah, I do. One of the manly, yeah, I do. manliest plays ever written. It's like, it's nothing but seven dudes and... Uh, testosterone everywhere f-bombs i mean how are you with cussing is this Please. cool yeah absolutely. fuck shits <laughs> asses everything um like a lot of uh emasculation a lot of uh showboating it's mm-hmm. just everything that you want in a masculine show so. right was that david mamet one of his early plays i mean how many plays has he written because he's incredibly oh. prolific he well i think he's kind of slowed down in the playwriting front because uh, he's really transitioned into film a mm-hmm. lot. He's directed a lot of films that not aren't necessarily his work. Um, but he's, God, he's written so much. I mean, he's one of those guys that it's just writing feverishly all the time. Um, and this is probably his best-known work because it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1984. Oh, wow. Um, and it's like an American classic. I mean, this play really, really put him on the map. Um, he did American Buffalo and that was his first big hit where people were like, who is this guy? He's talking how we talk and he's cussing when we cuss. He's saying, um, he's pausing when we're pausing. And it's also, it's heightened, but it's very realistic. Okay. as well um so it's not naturalism he has his own style um but it's still realism at the end of the day and um so american buffalo was his first big hit and then um as time went on uh he wrote more plays and he was getting more notoriety and then glenn gary glenn ross came along and that shot him into now he will forever be known as an American playwright. And he's a nut job, but, you know, we'll talk about that later probably. Right. He, from what I understand, if, if anyone listening, and if you are listening, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I'm sitting here with Tim Ashby right now. He is a master's MFA acting student. Yep. There you go. Uh, and this is your second year? My second year. I'm halfway done. So weird to say that. And why did you pick Ohio University? Oh, man. So there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'll give you the nutshell. So I auditioned for this program that's called URDAS. 
And there oh, are I'm sorry, URTAs. URTAs, yes, U R T A. It's an acronym. Okay. Um, oh, I want to say what it is, but I don't know the exact. <laughs> okay. What each letter means, so right. I don't want to be misquoted. So look it up. All right. U R T A. U R T A. Good. Yeah. Not to be confused with UPTAs, which is a different thing. Okay. Um, for all you discerning listeners, um, so I auditioned for URTAs. And that means that there are 20 schools all in one place, and uh, they audition in San Francisco, in Chicago, in New York. And I auditioned in Chicago. So I was going to audition the year before, and uh, it was the same deal. There were some different schools because some schools, like Ohio University, they actually um, bring in students once every three years versus new class every year. And um, so I was going to audition the year before, but I chickened out and I moved to Austin and had a great experience, learned about myself, got really confident, more confident than before, which isn't saying a whole lot. Um, (laughs) And I uh, just, uh, so I signed up to audition. I prepared some monologues and I flew up to Chicago and survived the fifth largest snowstorm in Illinois history, and I'm from Texas, so boom, <laughs> nothing scares me anymore. Did you take uh, appropriate clothing? Oh yeah, oh yeah, layers. <laughs> I was, I looked like that kid from uh, what's that, a Christmas story? Oh yeah, that couldn't get his hands down, and he looked like the penguin with his coat. That's exactly <laughs> what I looked like. It was great. Um, and so I auditioned, and um, so let me back up again. I had researched all of the programs the year before because one of the things that Erdis provides is a book that explains what each of the program, like what the funding is, what kind of, like a really simplified gist of what each program does. And if um, they're affiliated with any uh, professional theaters um or if you get your equity card at the end of it or if you get well, what points. what is an equity card that's a really good question that i'm not totally qualified to answer it is, isn't it essentially like your union it's, talent yeah pretty exactly much it's like theater? so um the basics that i know are that if you're equity you can act in equity shows but you cannot act in non-equity Non-equity cannot do equity shows until they get equity points and you accumulate equity points until you become an equity member. And that's the gist of what I know. And I'm still learning the business, um, the official business, because in Houston, Texas, there are some equity houses, which means that they put on shows with equity members. But... um, there's a lot more non-equity and I was working primarily with non-equity because I don't have any equity points yet. Um, Well, at the rate that you're doing shows and uh, film projects right now, it's, it's a matter of time. Well, thank you. I've already seen four performances from you Four in one semester. I've seen four performances. Oh yeah. Shaw's film. Yeah. Aisha's film. Mm -hmm. I saw you acting. It's not finished yet, but on Willett's film. Okay. And then I saw you in Mrs. Packard. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't get much sleep anymore, um, <laughs> is what you're basically saying. Yes. Yeah. But you have, yeah, the, the willingness to, to work and show up, I think, is a, is a big part of 
for any actor, really. I agree. Right? I mean, so so you, you auditioned for the the Erda yes. thing, and then you auditioned at Ohio University as well. Is Ohio University affiliated with the same organization? Yes. And okay. so they were part of the 20 schools that were there. And so um, whenever I was going to audition, they actually weren't there. Ohio University was not there because, like I said, they um, bring in people once every three years. Okay. So... Um, whenever I was looking through the list of schools that were auditioning, there were two in particular that stood out to me because they weren't on the list before. And that was Iowa, University of Iowa, mm -hmm. and Ohio University. And so as I was doing more research, based on looking past how pretty the website was, <laughs> um, it seemed like both of those schools were very interesting to me. So I emailed the professors and I got to, and I, got some response from them um but it was also their winter break but they also knew that incoming students were coming in so they wanted to be on alert um and so shelly delaney who is the head of the mfa program at ohio university um she emailed me back pretty promptly i was pretty surprised and so i basically asked her hey your website's beautiful great job on it you the information looks like it's right up my alley, but I want to know more information. What is something that someone needs to delve a little deeper to get into it? And so she responded back about two weeks later, which is pretty great because she gets massive amounts of emails all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so she sent me a website and she said, hey, thank you for being interested in the program. Here's a website that's under construction. And it basically... Um, has the curriculum and it says um and it shows some of the other actors that were in the mfa programs in years past and then the bfa and it shows their personal websites also um, because in our third year we're actually going to be taking a class that's about marketing ourselves as actors so but anyway um so i started looking through it and looking at the curriculum and then i decided i don't know who this shelly delaney is so I did some research on her and IMDb. she, IMDb, she, her, one of her first films was with Woody Allen what? and she played, she that. played like a little bit part in it, but still Woody Allen. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't heard of him, go he's, IMDb. He's Come kind on. of a big deal. He's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty great. And, uh, so I saw that and then I also just decided to YouTube her because I love YouTube and spend way too much time on it and it so now trivial pursuit I can dominate any game as long as it's about <laughs> like certain topics so but anyway uh so I YouTubed her and I found that she had done a show at uh Florida a uh, Florida theater that her husband had directed her in and it's a play called God of Carnage and uh it sounds brutal it's pretty intense. Like, it's hilarious, but it's just these people getting back to their animal instincts and just savage people, like, just, like, animals, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about parents, like, basically defending their kids. So, you know, it's, like, no holds barred. There's no filter. Um, and in the show, Shelly's character has to throw up on command. I don't remember the character's name. But so they so it's like, well, how do you do that? And there's a lot of different ways that you can. So there was a video that described how they got her to puke on command. Mm. 
So what they did is they ran a hose underneath the stage and they hooked it up through the couch, which she would then hook onto her sleeve. And then when the time came, someone would walk behind the, uh, the couch and flick a switch. And then after, and then once she got to that point, then she would cover, she would lift her hand up by her cheek and then the hose would come out and puke would come out on command. That's almost and as cool as if you had told me that she actually could puke on command. Every if she could do that, I wouldn't be surprised. If she could do that, that's why I would come to the school so I could learn how to do that, not for any other reason. Oh my um, god! But so then they were trying it out, and uh, so they she held her hand out. This is on like, YouTube. This is on YouTube. You could look it up. It's fucking great. <laughs> and. Uh, so she holds her arm out and she's kind of doing like this almost like Iron Man <laughs> position. Right. And so she's holding the hose out. And so they're like, oh, all right, well, let's do like 10 PSI. I don't know. So they like crank it up to 10 PSI and it's like dribble, dribble, nothing. So they're like, eh, let's crank it up to 70. Or I, I'm paraphrasing. But so <laughs> she holds it up again and then it just explodes everywhere. And so she falls over laughing and everyone's laughing and like wiping the like fake puke from their eyes and stuff. And they're just falling over laughing. This is the funniest thing. And so as soon as I saw that, I thought, I think we'd get along just fine. Yeah. You know, laughing at puke. Like who doesn't like bodily humor? Uh, What do they use? Oatmeal? Isn't that one of the most common puke? uh... There's oatmeal. You can do like cream of mushroom soup and stuff. Ah, I mean, anything. Um, There was like a magic video that I used to watch back in the day and they're like hey do you want to learn how to puke on command and they like taught you to get a balloon full of cream of mushroom soup and then you just be like oh I can't do it and squeeze your chest while you're like trying to vomit and people would freak out I don't even remember what that came from but I remember I thought that was the coolest thing that ever. is pretty cool there are all kinds of little tricks like that that you have to use on stage yeah yeah and some are more sophisticated like the hose underneath the stage is way more sophisticated than like a community theater thing mm-hmm. where they might actually have the balloon and they might do that. Um, or some people might puke on command. I mean, see, this is me getting into my nerdy stuff, but James McAvoy in the movie Filth, which is a very underrated, very perverse movie that I recommend to anybody who's not squeamish. Um, or even if you're squeamish, have a good time. Um <laughs> He actually can puke on command, and his uh, he plays a detective in the Scottish Scotland Yard. Okay, and uh, he, so he has to play hungover and high and all these different things. So there's a more uh, the morning after a big binge, he uh, has to puke. And I remember looking on IMDb trivia, and they said, "Oh yeah, he can puke on command." So he just did it by himself. So it is possible. I think that probably also involves a lot of practice. Like if you are bulimic. I'm sure you can puke on command. Yes. After a while, I've heard that you can do that. But I think he did that more out of trying to get out of class than for trying to lose weight because he does not need to lose weight right. in any shape or form. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. So. Here you are. Yeah. So then I. Yeah. <laughs> fake puke. That's how I got here. Um, so I saw the video and I emailed her back and said, Hey, thank you for the information. By the way, I YouTubed your name and I saw the video where you had the puke tube and I thought it was great. And she said, Oh my God, I can't believe you saw that. Ah, I'm looking forward to your audition, Tim. I was like, Oh, cool. So I have an ally right there. Perfect. Cool. 
So I audition and everybody around me is so nervous because it's an MFA. You you weren't? I was at first until I realized I can only do as good as I can right now. And then like, I was like, all right. So then all that pressure's off of, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be the best thing they've ever seen. It's Mm -hmm. going to be my best right now. It's, it may not be my best ever. It may not be my best from yesterday. It might be, it's just my best today. That's all I can do. So that really relaxed me. And then I kind of got juiced up by everybody else's nerves. I was like, yeah, I got it. So it wasn't very good, (laughs) but it was still, I still felt confident about it. So, um, I auditioned and then I took a workshop that that's called grad school is the journey not the destination and it's basically explaining like really what grad school is all about and uh, like how much it's going to cost how many hours according to who according to professors whoever teaches the workshop or just according to um people who have been through programs and things like that was it offered by ohio uh no no this was just uh schools so um it didn't necessarily have to be ohio university um but uh, it could be whatever school wanted to volunteer their time uh, to do this. And um, you having trouble with that, Mike? Yeah, a little bit. A little Here, bit. loosen the, uh, the stand. Yeah. Tilt it up. There you go. Then tighten Ooh, yeah. it. Yeah, this is sexy. Okay, there you cool. go. Still figuring out the equipment. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a newbie. I'm a noob. It's okay. I may be a master's student, but I'm still a beginner in so many different ways. Um, Here, hang on one second. I'm going to pause real quick. So there's a... a Group of guys or a group of professors, rather, telling you what the realities, w- what to expect, are. right? Okay. Yeah. So um, I signed up for this workshop, you know, just because I wanted it to know because I had been idealizing or idolizing grad school forever because every person that I knew that had gone through it, I was so excited to talk to them about it, and I knew that I wanted to do it. It was just a matter of time of when, and. Um, so I took this workshop and Shelley Delaney from Ohio University and this man from a London university were on the panel. And so they were explaining, um, yeah, you know, you're going to work a lot. You're going to work probably 60 to 70 hours a week. Um, and then talking about the differences between their programs and what they expect from their students and just kind of laying it all out. And it scared me, but in the best way you know and uh so then i found out that i was called back for three schools and i narrowed down the 20 schools to five schools that i really wanted to pay attention to me and i don't remember what they were offhand but i know ohio was actually my number one school because also ohio um is really big into uh developing a very strong foundation in the work and I felt that that's what I was missing because uh well I'll explain why I wanted to go to grad school later um but I found out that I was uh called back for three of the five schools that I was really interested in so I was really excited about that and uh so I went to my callbacks and I and it's, it sounds sketchy, but we went to hotel rooms because the audition is in a hotel, like in the banquet room in a hotel, mm-hmm. which is not a very good auditioning environment at all. No, you probably feel naked. Yeah. You feel naked. The acoustics suck. 
It's just like here's this huge room with 20 people all in one area, and you go up on like this portable stage. And you're like, hey, I know you can barely hear me over these squeaking stairs and like this a terrible acoustics, but here's my best shot. Here you go. Um, and so the callbacks are in hotel rooms and I had heard like this one woman who like killed her audition. She got like 17 callbacks. So she's running around trying to like visit all of them and talk to them about their programs. Um, and, uh, then like, you know, I was pretty laid back cause I was like, man, I got three. Awesome. Three of five. I'm not disappointed with that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I finally got to Ohio university callback, which was my last one of the day. And uh, so I knock on the door and Shelly opens the door and she said, hey, Tim, it's nice to finally meet you. And I said, hey, Shelly. And so she turns back to her colleague, David, who's also one of my professors, and uh, says, hey, this guy's been stalking me. He looked me up on YouTube. He emailed me. She took the, he took the workshop and now he's here. I was like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know you were teaching the workshop. And so then we laugh. And then um, so I'm like super laid back because at, at this point it's about – them selling their program to me more than anything really so it's like i so showed when, them when you like, get to the callback stage mm-hmm. and they're competing with a bunch of other schools it's kind of like okay yeah we, we, we're interested in this person right let's confirm that essentially okay yeah so i knew also like you know if i don't get in this year i got other opportunities i'm not like really i don't need to stress about this so i went in not cocky not insecure but just kind of meh you know cool. I hope this works. I hope it does. And if it doesn't, all right, I'll see you next year or two years from now, who knows? Um, and so we, they're asking me some questions. I'm asking them some questions and, um, I don't remember exactly what my answer was and I don't remember what the question was, but I remember them asking me a question and me answering. And then Shelly's eyes got huge and she looked at David and she looked back at me and said, Okay, that that was a really honest answer. I was like, well, that's how I feel. And then I remember um, they were telling me about how they're really um, interested in building a foundation in actors and starting from the ground floor for everybody and then working your way up into um, learning the Meisner technique. And so they said, so what are you interested in for grad school? And I said, well, that's actually exactly what I'm interested in. I really want to get a foundation because I have a lot of ideas about acting and I could talk about it for hours. But at the end of the day, I really just am so bored with the idea of myself whenever I'm acting. Like I just, I know that I'm doing okay, but it's just like scratching the surface. And I see actors like my favorite actor working today, Michael Fassbender. And he, in shame, I just, I've seen that movie seven times easily. Wow. And it, I don't even know why. Like, it's not even my, I don't think it's my favorite movie, but clearly something keeps coming back to me about it. And so I knew to go that in depth with a role, I knew that I needed foundational training. And I knew that I needed to be very immersed with that. And so when they said, oh, wow, that was really honest too. You're bored with the idea of yourself? And I said, yeah, because I want to get further into this. I want to delve into myself and pull out stuff that scares me. I want to like show who I am more. And when I said that, like now that we're learning how to do that, it's terrifying. And I knew it was going to be terrifying, but I didn't realize it was going to be this terrifying. 
that's something a lot of people don't know about acting as a as a craft. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think it, they think that it's almost even my idea of what acting was before I ever worked with any actors mm-hmm. was oh they're doing this impression right. and they're pretending to be someone mm-hmm. and they have this little verbal tick and so mm-hmm. I would look at at you know Johnny Depp movies mm-hmm. and think oh I could do that yeah. no big deal I just combine what was it for Sleepy Hollow it was like Nancy Drew and like something else he combined right. together to make to make that character yeah. and I want to ask you about because you said that your your callback you were totally calm mm-hmm. your audition you were pretty calm mm-hmm. auditions seem to be the one of the most crippling experiences that an actor has especially when they're first starting out oh yeah and i had to want had to i was happy to watch the auditions of the mm. uh, theater students earlier in the fall and you know it was like a f- was it four hours like a four yeah. hour thing and i got to the point halfway through where i stopped being uncomfortable sitting there watching them mm. and actually i pitied Oh, I got you. The actors, like I felt bad that they had to be on stage after we'd all been sitting there for two hours mm-hmm. and try to impress us or try to stand out in some way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the actors I've talked to have said that most of the time, like their job is auditioning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like what? what just for an example, what is your? Even I don't even know if you even calculated this. Your audition to gig ratio. That's a good question. Um... It's not as bad as some people just because I also, if I didn't feel right about an audition or I was like, nah, I don't know, then I wouldn't audition. So I probably booked hmm, a quarter. Okay. Maybe. It's not bad. No, it's not bad. It's actually, it's, it's good. Um, but again, I didn't audition for a whole lot. And if, and I also really only did stuff that I was really more interested in mm-hmm. instead of just like, I'm going to audition for everything. I have to be seen for everything. I, I've never felt the temptation for that ever. Like, I mean, yeah, no, I, I never felt the temptation of like, I have to be seen by this. I, I need to do this. Um, Kroger commercial. I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to. Uh, I have to go see this casting director. Oh, I have to go audition for Academy Sports and Outdoors. I have to audition for this play just because this theater is great. I have to audition for. You know, I never felt compelled to do that. Is that a common mindset among actors? Absolutely not. No. Um, I need to be better about going out and just going out, doing my best, striking out, and like just quantity over anything because. When we're first starting out, we're not going to book anything for a while. Mm -hmm. And if we do, it'll be probably because of luck. Um, Because that's the thing that gets really demoralizing for a lot of people, I think, is you see someone who is going through an MFA program like I am, and they're auditioning for uh, commercials, and they're looking at CVS commercials or something, and they prepare for this, and they're trying to do this, and then someone comes along that is like, I heard about being an actor and I think it sounds like fun. Oh boy. And then they do it and they get the gig. But commercials are so much more about type than about, we don't care if you can act. You look like someone we want to see at CVS and who we think people will want to see at CVS to get them through the door. So I think that becomes really demoralizing for a lot of people Mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, well I trained at Juilliard. So why can't I get this Lincoln car commercial? And it's like, well, 
because you didn't look like this kind of person that we wanted. Like some people can get cast because they remind them of the casting director's boyfriend. Or some people may not get it because they remind them of the casting director's boyfriend. It's so... You know what else is really crazy? And when I was watching the auditions in the fall, I kept... I started off writing down very nice, vague uh, descriptions of the actors. Mm. Like, pleasant blah, blah, blah. Pleasant Mm. blah, blah, blah. Or interesting this, interesting that. And then as I started going along, I was like, wait, this isn't going to help me. I have to write down the most brutal appraisal of their appearance and performance and voice. And so then it went from being... Oh, soprano voice to wow, she sounds shrill, mm-hmm. or or like overweight, you know, whatever. It, it, and it started. I started feeling bad about that. I was like, wait a minute, I need to know these specifics because if I'm doing a film, they're going to be on screen, right? It doesn't matter how good of an actor they are. If you're an 80 year old black woman, you can't play a 20 year old white male. It's just nope. not possible. Nope. So then, but so I started doing all that, and then I started feeling really bad because there were some amazing auditions mm-hmm. and fantastic actors that didn't fit my project. Yeah. And I was writing down notes, like I put a little star next to it. Like I, mm-hmm. I would like to work with this person, mm-hmm. but for right now, I just, I don't have a part for them. Right. So even if you're an amazing actor, you might not get the gig just because it's just not your part. Yeah. That's brutal. It's <laughs> I like, I've made my peace with it for the most part. Like maybe I'm just lying to myself, honestly, <laughs> but yeah, no, like, uh, Al Pacino, didn't do i mean he's not my favorite actor i'm just gonna make that clear i think he's he's done some really good work and i think he's done some great projects he's not my favorite actor but he used to go on auditions and just say this is my chance to act today that's it that's all i'm thinking about if i don't get the job i got to act that day great perfect now i can go do my waiting job and basically dissolve my soul essentially and to get people to buy stuff and now I can pay my rent, you know? So, um, that's a really good way to look at it. You know, it's like, yeah. So you get to act. And then Brian Cranston is famous for saying, look, I just do my job when I get in the door. That's it. I am showing them what I'm going to do with the role. If they don't want it. Cool. Cause you don't buy every single car that you think is going to be best for you. You look at this and you're like, okay, so I want the Toyota Camry as opposed to the Chevrolet Camaro. Okay, so that narrows it down. Now, what color do you want? Now, do you want a hybrid? Do you want a standard? Do you want a manual? Do you want an automatic? So then you start to narrow it down to what you really want. So it's not... So the more personally you take it by not getting a callback, by not getting the job, the quicker you're going to get burnt out because rejection sucks. Nobody likes it. Right. But if you don't think of it as rejection, you're just thinking like, okay, well, I wasn't right for that. Boom, that's it. Like, I can't do anything about it. So I think that once people realize, just do your best, do something, make your choice. And this is such a cliche piece of advice, but make a choice, stand out by doing your best. You may not get this job, but your job is not to get the job. Your job is to audition and come back. That's it. And so... And so you might get a star next to your name like you did. And you might get the casting director say like, okay, this guy was great. Not for this, but we're going to keep him in mind for something. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, What's the Guardians of the Galaxy? What's the director's name? James Gunn. 
So he directed a movie recently with this guy who's done a lot of theater, theater, and theater, um, theater. And he, uh, so and the actor's named John Gallagher Jr. And he has done like the newsroom. He's done short term 12, but he's done more independent movies and he's done more theater than anything else. But James Gunn had him audition for probably Guardians of the Galaxy and was like, oh, not for this movie, but that is the best audition I've ever seen. So he wrote a role for John Gallagher Jr. in his new movie. Yeah, because he knew he wanted to work with him. He knew that if he can do that for an audition, he can definitely do this for the film. So if he makes a really complicated, awesome character for him in his new movie, he'll knock it out of the park. So That can be really dangerous for a non-established... I mean, from my perspective, that can be really dangerous to write a character for an actor because what if you can't get the actor? Like, yeah. I, I'm sort of in the middle of that, you know, situation right mm-hmm. now where it's like, I really hope I can get this guy because I was thinking about him the entire time I was writing the script. Yeah. And I was thinking about this girl the entire time I was writing this female character. Mm-hmm. And if I can't get them, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. But yeah, no, exactly. I, that. So we, when you audition now, yeah. do you still have that same kind of, hey, Give him my best. No big deal. Ooh. Do you still get the butterflies? Oh, I yeah. mean, <laughs> yes, that, that probably never stops. I, no. I can't imagine it ever stopping unless you get to the point where you don't audition and they just they hire. They call you up. Right? Even then, that's nerve wracking, too, because as you said, well, like what if well, and it, well, it's not necessarily what you said, but that's a whole different set of nerves. I feel like because if you audition with the material, you can show that you can do the material. But if they give you an offer and they say, hey, we think you'd be great for this. Well, now you have that profess- uh, pressure of, oh, shit. Well, I better do a good job because right. that's what they're hedging their bets on. So some I know um, some actors, they are like, thank you for the offer, but I'd really like to audition for you to make sure. like." And so some actors also, once they get to a point, they want to audition not just so that they can show that they can do it, but they also want to audition the director. They want to see how the director works too, so okay. it, it's, it can be a two-way street. That's it doesn't have to be the the actor auditioning for the director. So um, yeah, oh, I still get nervous, absolutely. And I mean, you saw that in the audition I, this I past did, fall. I did, well, I remember talking to you afterwards, and you were like, "Oh man, I screwed up." You know, like where <laughs> you, you said, "I need to work on my auditioning." I think is what I, you told me. You told me something along those lines. Yeah. But I, so luckily I'm in a, since I've been here for a year and a half now, and by that point I was here for a year, I felt more comfortable messing up because I knew it was, it, this is part of the process. I'm in a safe place. It's fine. Um, but I did mess up. I forgot my lines three times in a three minute monologue slot. Come on. That's not good. That's not good on any account. But instead of freaking out and being like, I forgot my line. So what's my line? It's just like, okay, I forgot my line. Breathe. Say some more lines. You also went first. I was second. Were you second? Yes. Oh, that's right. That other guy went first. Yeah. Alex is first. And so I'm used to going first because of A, Ashby. So... (laughs) That's just an interesting experience too. To not be first, like first, you're kind of like, fuck it, I got it, 
whatever. Right. Second, it's like, oh, crap, now I have to follow that, which, I mean, Alex is a talented guy, so, you know, I could, like, wrap myself in, like, oh, God. And then also people sometimes think that we're very similar types, which we're both bigger guys, so I can kind of see it, but it's different. Your your delivery is completely different. Yeah. Completely then, different. Absolutely. Um, our essence is similar, I guess, or the your, fact that we're both big energy, white guys. My, your, my your aura. aura. <laughs> <laughs> our auras are very jovial. I don't know. Well, okay, so you have you have um, your standard stage audition. I, I know that uh, they generally tell you you, you you have two pieces, right? Mm-hmm. And you have you have one like, comedic and one serious. Is that a standard like across the board? Is that generally how people do auditions? It's more under uh, contrasting. That's what it's labeled as more. It's not necessarily like do a comedic drama. It's more try to do contemporary classical. Um, what I'm going to be doing for my coming upcoming audition is um, I'm going to do something that's more action. Uh, like I want you to do something and you better do it now. And then my other one's more image based and it's more telling a story. Okay. So that contrast is what I'm working with because um, next semester shows are not uh, there's not going to be a classical play next semester. Okay. So, so. you it's figuring out what kind of material you're going to be auditioning for having something somewhat similar. Yeah. But then you also have to do something that makes you stand out from all the other actors well, who are doing their thing, right? I mean, Yeah. And I I really I really don't like to think of it as standing out, honestly. Maybe I'm just afraid of showing off or like afraid of being perceived as showing off. I really don't like that very much. And that's also I just insecurity of maybe like the tallest poppy f- what it, what's that saying like the you know whatever uh the tallest poppy in the field gets chopped down or something, something like, like that. that maybe that's where i come from and people i don't want to do that and i don't want to get chopped down first i don't know All right um but i just want to be as me and i want to experiment with different characters as much as possible don't necessarily want to be like the best or like i want to stand out and i want all that stuff. I just want to show who I am, what I can do. And if I show range, great. Awesome. I really want to show range. Um, because I don't want someone to cast me and think I'm somebody that I'm not. And then I would have to do two layers of acting on top of my acting. Anyway, I want to be as authentic as I can so that you're getting what you paid for essentially. Right. Um, and that's did, not a common, that's not very common either, I don't think. Did you study acting as an undergrad? I studied, I auditioned for the BFA program at Texas State, and I didn't get in. Um, but I did end up getting a BFA in theatrical performance and production. So basically did. What's the distinction? Well, so acting is just acting. And you don't really have to take a stage lighting class or stage craft class or anything. Um, And I took those kinds of classes. And I took a directing class also, which I'm so glad that I did because now I know that I want to direct and that I'm interested in writing screenplays and writing plays as well as acting. Um, So it was actually kind of a blessing disguise that I didn't get into the acting program. Um, So... I did. I did act. Um, 
I only did one main stage show, which, you know, really at the, in the, at the end of the day, who really cares? Um, but yeah, so I did a lot of directing class scenes. I did a lot of, uh, playwright reading workshops. Mm -hmm. I did, uh, there wasn't really a film program, so I didn't really do that. Um, or if there was, I didn't know about it. Um, so yeah, I just kind of like scrapped together, um, an education based and basically because the program was pretty new. So, um, yeah, kind of just did my own thing and it served me pretty well. And I had a blast. And you felt, did you feel that you didn't get enough out of the program, which is why you wanted to get a master's degree? Like, yeah. what, what's the benefit of a master's acting education? That's a good question. Other than the obvious, I mean, because I've, I've met Shelly, I haven't met David, mm -hmm. but I've seen how they structure things and I've talked to other actors in the program about studying Meisner and all the little things they have to do mm -hmm. to get in touch with the you know, darker corners of their own yeah. soul, if you will. Yeah. But, and there are a lot of actors who never got an MFA. Right, yeah. There are plenty of successful actors who never went to... Yeah, they... Like, you know what some, I mean? Like, for you, what made that essential? Other well, than what you've already you already told me, kind of, you know, why you chose Ohio, but yeah, for I mean, so but you had experience mm. on stage, yes, before this, yes, and you thought that this would take you to the next level, yes, and I'm actually kind of kind of backtrack a little bit, yeah. You talked about acting on two levels. Mm -hmm. If you present yourself in an audition that's not authentic, right? Did you have to do a lot of tearing down some kind of public? persona or facade in mm. order to become a better actor is that something that they they actually address when you get into the mfa program here mm. well yes and no so i in my quest for authenticity i have been criticized here as being very casual as being very like Meh, nothing affects me when on the inside I'm freaking out more than anything because now it's like oh crap I gotta act three times a day oh crap like I'm not I'm not ready I'm not nearly as ready as I want to be oh. um which I never am but um it's a matter of learning also kind of what your behavior is in the real world so that was my way of kind of keeping people away and also of not really being honest. So I really like trying to be on uh, authentic in that way actually got me away from being authentic in a way. It's wow. weird. Like I was, I was shutting down impulses, which is basically we're learning uh, the Meisner technique or we learned the Meisner technique. Can you talk now. about the little bit? Because a lot yeah. of people have no idea what, I know a little bit about Meisner, but if you could give like a little primer. Absolutely. Because, you know, most people have heard the name Stanislavski. Yes. Right. And that was like the standard, right, for mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah. Meisner comes along. What was his contribution to acting? So um, I, I won't go into the whole history because it's still, it's a little fuzzy right now. Cause should I, should I, I save know. that for when I talk to Shelly? Yeah, if you want to. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And she would be able to explain Meisner like way better than I can. But – the gist of it is that uh, Stanislavski comes along and he starts to codify uh, acting technique. 
where he saw people and they would just gesture and like talk in a big booming voice and emoting I am the great Othello, you know, like acting that way. And then um, Stanislavski, who did theater and he did that kind of theater for a while, started to watch the great people act. What, you mean Meisner? Uh, no, this is Stanislavski. This is Stanislavski. So, okay. yeah, this so is... Stanislavski had been watching that over-gesturing, mm-hmm. dramatic exterior mm-hmm. perform. Okay, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. no, it's fine. Uh, so he had been seeing people do that, and he started to notice that the great actors were doing things even though they may not have been conscious of it. And so he started to say, like, oh, they're doing an action right now. Oh, they're trying to achieve an objective when they're doing something. So he's bringing in these terms that can sound kind of scientific, but it's actually codifying, making a technique of people's quote-unquote talent. And so he comes, and Stella Adler goes over there and studies with him. She comes and brings that back. And so her big thing is using your imagination and really... um, exploring the world around the play to in order to get into character and then lee strasberg uh wanted actors to um use their personal history and really get into it and this is all um they were part of the group theater i think and so they were um starting to adapt stanislavski's teaching into their own and then meisner saw what they were doing and he thought that they were too um self-absorbed and so his big credo is um you can't do anything unless your scene partner makes you do it which means i'm it's the pinch and the ouch like if i pinch you you're gonna say ouch and then that's it's action reaction which leads to another action, reaction, action, reaction, Mm -hmm. back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So my attention is on you. It's not on me. It's not about emotion. It's not about like, oh, I got to remember that my, when my grandmother died so that I can imagine what my grandmother died in the scene. It's not about that. It's about you're making me do this. So that makes me do this, which makes me do, makes you do this. And it's going back and forth like that. And so the, basic basic exercise that we learn at first is called the repetition exercise and so you basically stay stand where you are or sit where you are mostly stand just because it's more uncomfortable and it's more fun to be uncomfortable and so you um just say you just scratch your nose and you say i scratch my nose so it's basically expressing your point of view and then you repeat it back and then you or like your shirt is black and you say, my shirt is my black. My shirt is black, right. Your shirt is black. And you go back and forth, and it gets really tedious after a while. And then you start to build from there. And then um, when you're acting, you're not focusing on yourself, ideally, theoretically. You're focusing on what your par- scene partner is doing, and you're learning to achieve your objective through your partner. So like when I'm doing Glengarry Glen Ross, I'm trying to achieve getting... Uh, this man to give me the leads the uh, sales leads and so I have to do everything I can to do that and I have to pay attention to what he's doing and if I can try and find a way to get convince him to do that by 
uh, bribing him, by bullying him, by doing these actions, then I'm going to try to achieve an objective with the person in real time. And uh, so Meisner's really big into that and using your imagination as opposed to um, your personal history because he and Stella Adler really believe that the imagination is limitless. But Lee Strasberg, who does the personal stuff, Meisner and uh, Stella thought that your personal experience is not nearly as exciting as Hamlet's is. Or, That's a very good point. You know, or Willie Loman, or my character, um, Shelley Levine in Glengarry Glen Ross. The Machine. Shelley the Machine <laughs> Levine. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I'm, I'm not a 60-year-old man who is trying in the 80s trying to get the lead so that he can make a really good sale so that he can save his daughter's life who's in the hospital. I'm not that. No. I hope hopefully will never be that. If you were doing Strasbourg's method though, mm-hmm. how would you how would you even go about trying to attack that? I don't even know. It seems really now Strasbourg was the actor's studio, right? He was. Yes. Okay. Um and I mean among other people, but he's more in that vein. Okay. And uh yeah, he started that in the 40s. So you do a lot of imagination exercises with this Meisner technique. Yes. Do you, uh, do, you do that at the start of every character that you look at? You do I like imagination to. exercises? Yeah. Well, yeah. So also another thing that Meisner does too is called the as if. So I can't relate to um, like if someone were to say, hey, fight for your daughter's life. Be like, I don't have a daughter. I don't know what that's like. But if I ran over my dog and I have to do this, if I have to make enough money to go to be able to pay the vet to save my dog's life, my dog could kind of make sense for my uh, daughter. So it's like as if fight for this as if this happened to your dog kind of thing. That's like a really basic thing, too, that we – in this program we're getting into that but then we're also getting more away from that and really delving into daydreaming and really going into your imagination and really it doesn't it doesn't have to literally make sense it just has to make sense and get you to a place emotionally essentially and emotion is never the goal but you do the daydreaming before you come in and then you just let it go and go and just let your impulses fly whenever you're doing this. Because also, let me back up too, Meisner believed that if your focus is on your scene partner and not yourself, you're going to be able to follow your impulses a lot better because you're not focusing on like, okay, on this line, I'm going to take a sip of beer. Okay, cool. Or, well, that's a bad example. But, or I'm going to poke you in the chest and get a rise out of you. Well, no. It's like if I feel like doing that to get a rise out of you, I might do that. And that's an impulse versus trying to plan out everything, which he had seen actors do. And some people had done it pretty well, but there's also not a lot of life in it. And it's not Mm -hmm. as fun, frankly. It seems like that kind of technique would require Mm -hmm. someone to know that script front and back and yeah. rehearse the shit out of it, mm-hmm. right? Because you, I, I can only imagine having room to make those kind of emotional, those natural emotional progressions if you've got the rest of the, the you're, you're hitting your marks and, and the mm-hmm. blocking like clockwork. I don't yeah. think there's probably no other way to do that. 
I mean, people, there's... From my perspective, of course. I'm not an actor, so... Yeah. But no, I mean, I I am starting to agree with you a lot more. Um, There are some actors out there that they barely memorize their lines. They may not memorize their lines. They might hope they get lucky by saying the right line. And they just kind of show up and they expect their anxiety to turn into a good performance or something. Some people, it works for them. I mean, I don't, I don't, can't think of anybody offhand, but some actors, they know that that works for them. Cool. But that is real. If you're doing a play, that is really, really hard to sustain because if you're in Broadway, if you're on Broadway and you're doing a show for, let's be generous and say three or four months, you're going to die by week three. Because you're just going to be like, I don't know what I'm doing or where I am or anything. But if you rehearse and you know where you are, what you're trying to do, and you like set this structure down, then you're going to be able to just let it go and let the structure take care of itself. Like I sent you that video about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how he finds a structure, and then he can kind of wiggle between that. And he finds the life in there, and he just lets it go and does it. So he does a lot of thinking before, or he did a lot of thinking beforehand, and then he just lets it go and kind of sees where it goes. Like, so one night he could yell and scream on one part, and then another part he could whisper really intensely, and I want you to pay attention to me, and I want you to do So it could be whatever. And it's not wrong. It's not right. It's just what it is that day, Mm -hmm. you know? And... So, and another thing that I, a reason I came to grad school too is because I had gotten to the place of like, we'll see what happens without really laying the framework for it. So now I'm learning how to do the framework. And so theoretically that's opening me up more because I don't have to think about that stuff. I don't have to worry about, oh, I don't know what this means. I guess I'll find out. Mm. It's like, well, I know who I'm talking to. I know this is my piece of shit son who owes me $50,000 and I have to get it back from him because he, because, because I owe money to the bank and for the mortgage. So like, I know this is my son and I got to punish him in order to get this money back from him. So I know who my son is versus this is my son. Well, that's boring. Nobody wants to play that. You got to like, find ways to juice it up a little bit. Right. Um, so I'm learning like how to ask the questions that are going to push my buttons. And, uh, yeah. So it's you enjoying more, it so far. I am. <laughs> I, I really am. That was a longer pause than I intended. Um, but yeah, no, I, I love it, but it is stressful because part of the daydreaming too is just like, I, I talked to my relatives, uh, this past break, and they're like, so how's school? What do you, what do you do? Like, I don't even know what an acting MFA means. It's like, well, I'm still trying to figure out what that means too. But um, I was saying like, yeah, we do a lot of daydreaming. And they're like, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. But it's not like, oh, look at that butterfly. I wonder where it's going. Huh? It's like imagining the worst possible things that could happen to you. Like I got a like in the scene my mother gets brutally murdered by my best friend so i got to find so in my daydream i got to figure out something to daydream about to get me to that place of betrayal of rage 
of all these of any number of things and it just is my choice of what I want to daydream about but I have to daydream like some nasty stuff like the worst things that could happen in my life or the best things that could happen in my life mm-hmm. you know so it's like it, it's it's learning to be as honest as possible of like this is the worst possible thing that could happen to me or the best thing and and it can be more specific than that and it should be um just because in a movie, in a play, you're not doing everyday life. These people are going through heightened circumstances. Like, um, you watch the movie, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. Fences. Uh, which I don't know if you've seen that yet. I have not seen it. The last movie I saw was Moana. Moana? Moana. The Disney oh, movie. Oh, the Disney movie. With the Rock. Okay. As the voice well, of a shape-shifting demigod. Oh, well. I have not seen it. It was a nice adaptation of the hero's journey with Polynesian mythology. Okay. I have to say, still not a huge fan of musicals. Okay. Well, then... <laughs> I can't, I can't. Oh, well, then you should not see La La Land, even uh, though I'm not either. I have fantastic. tried, Tim. I've tried. Yeah. But I hung out with, with actors as an undergrad. And it was, they're singing musicals when they're walking to class. You get in the car, and it's a, this is back when they had the disc changers in the car. Mm. It was like a five CD disc changer that's all show tunes. Mm. And I just, I, it, I can't. I I still love Singing in the Rain, though. I've never seen that movie. Ooh, you might really enjoy that because it's about the development of talking films. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It goes from the silent era to the talkie era. And it had, um, Gene Kelly, Gene Kelly. Yeah, I know yeah, all it's, about it's, it. Oh, just... it's, it's 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 amazing. But I, I find that the musicals that I enjoy, I don't necessarily enjoy for the music. I enjoy for the story that they're telling. I see. So I don't go around singing the songs from Singing in the Rain. Yeah, it's just a really cool story. Yeah. And the same thing with you know my other favorite is Les Mis. Okay. I, I just think like I think Les Miserables. I mean, it was based on a novel by Victor Hugo. Right. Who was a complete literary badass. So I enjoy that for the characters and everything. Yeah, you know, I still like, you know, red, the color. Yeah. Right. I know I like that too. Yeah. But music, anyway, I'm sorry. Get no, off on that tangent. Um, but I can't um, stand that either. Okay. Just, I'm right there with well, you. Well, here, here, here's something. So you're talking about active imagination. You, yeah. were, you were in that play, Mrs. Packard. Yes. And where you're playing an abusive oh. father who commits his wife to an insane asylum for disagreeing with his religious beliefs in the 19th century yeah. and and your your coast the star of the show is your friend annie mm-hmm. I've, I've i've hung out with both of you mm-hmm. especially in our in our acting class and i'm watching this happen and i know as you know audience member like oh tim and annie they're very nice people i've hung out with them they're totally cool but then i'm watching you like nail the door shut while <laughs> she's screaming you're yeah. refusing to get her out of this uh, terrible filthy living conditions mm-hmm. I, I mean is that something where you have to like stay away from annie during the rehearsal process because because you're the bad guy and you guys are, are at odds I mean how much does that intrude on your daily life mm. when you're doing so much imagination when there is so much emotional work that's mm. the part that's something that I can't quite wrap my head around yeah. because I like knowing where I stand mm. having a standard and sticking to my guns on things and, and I when you jump into performance especially something as emotional as that particular play mm. which I loved by the way cool thank you um I'll take all the credit. Yeah. <laughs> um, I imagine that must be very difficult, and I wonder how 
you know, you talk about an actor being, it's a, it's a craft, okay? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like that guy um, from Breaking Bad, what's his name? Brian Cranston. He's yeah. doing his job. Mm-hmm. Your job is emotionally tumultuous mm-hmm. if you're doing the research properly. How do you balance that? And how did you do that for Mrs. Packard? Because it was, it, it was intense. Oh. It was such an intense thing to watch. Yeah. And it was intense in the doing and intense in the offstage too. I mean, the thing about it, acting is so weird. It, I like really think about it. It's weird. You are memorizing words on a page. You're wearing somebody else's clothing. You're walking around on a blank stage that happens to have maybe a few levels. Uh, it had like in in the case of Mrs. Packard, we have like these big plastic sheets that are covering a room. Mm-hmm. Um, we have hay. We have people pretending to be insane. You have me pretending to be a Calvinist minister in like 1863, and I and like Annie had to play someone who's fighting for her sanity, like fighting for her sanity as well as equal rights for herself. And then we have to do it in front of people. And they're yeah. all facing the same way. That's weird as fuck. <laughs> like that is a weird situation. And like I'm 27, and I had to play somebody that was in his 50s, and we didn't really play fit, uh, that I was in his, my 50s. But I digress. And yeah, you know, like it's weird. So, but somehow, if magic happens, it's transforming. It's transcendent. It's just, it's so weird. So all that to say that somehow some if you're lucky and you just trust it sometimes it kind of just bleeds into real life for the time of doing the show so annie and i were civil in the acting class and we're civil like we were civil with each other we were never like yelling at each other or cussing each other out or like threatening to kill each other off stage or anything but we did keep our distance more just unconsciously we didn't like do it on purpose but there were times when she looked at me and i looked at her and we're like we're okay right she's like yeah we're fine i'm like okay cool and then she'd have to come up to me and be like hey you you're not mad at me are you i was like no i'm getting out on stage it's fine she's like oh okay so it's it's like this weird thing like sometimes the dynamics kind of just start to evolve into that but now like i saw her last night at a bar and we like talked and it was great. And we talked about our break and we talked about how everything was. And yeah, so now we're back to being like really good friends off stage too. But sometimes it just happens. Sometimes the dynamic just happens. So it just comes with the territory then. It just kind of comes you with the territory. You have to deal with that. And I mean, some people are able to like, some people hopefully they do just stop it at the door like there are some people that play killers and rapists and all that stuff hopefully they do keep it at the door and don't like bring it anywhere <laughs> but i mean like i the show that i did the semester before i played a guy that was kind of a man child and kind of like goofy and doing all this stuff and so i found that i was joking around with the lead actor a lot more and I was like trying to get him to chill out a little bit and like trying to open up to him and like befriend him and do all these things. Well, these are things that I was doing in the play too. I wasn't doing this consciously. I wasn't trying to like, oh, I'm going to provoke him into doing this. No, I wasn't like sending him dead pigs like Jared Leto in Suicide Squad. Oh like, yeah, we could talk about that too. Yeah. But, um, so at what point does that become an issue of actor role confusion? And does such a thing exist? I think it can. Um, 
I think it can. I think if you really go into it and really just invest so much of yourself into a part, I think it's easy to. I think you could. I think you absolutely could. But there's a trend right now of, oh, I'm going to stay in character. Because you see Daniel Day-Lewis, who's won three Oscars, and that's his technique of like... Has he won three? He's won three. Three lead actors. He's, he's so the good. Only person. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. So good. And so, like you know, people think like, okay, I'm just going to show up and be in character all the time. I'm going to send dead pigs to Margot Robbie. I'm going to send used condoms to Will Smith. You know, no, that's no. Daniel Day Lewis. I saw an interview with one of my favorite acting coaches, Larry Moss, who is amazing. He is such a cool guy. I've met him. I talked to him a little bit. He comes from old school, so he knows so much about acting. He loves it. He coaches Leonardo DiCaprio. He coaches Hilary Swank. He coaches Helen Hunt. I mean, these are top echelon people, and they've won Oscars because of this man. Wow. Um, and Oscar, I don't think, is ever is always an indicator of greatness, but I digress. So, But he said that for Daniel Day-Lewis to play Lincoln, Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner, the screenwriter, they said, Daniel, we are really interested in you for Abraham Lincoln. And it took some convincing because Daniel, when he goes and he does stuff, he's committing a thousand percent. He is not going to hold back. So it takes a lot for him to do that. So because he's a cobbler in Italy or something like that, because he's just trying to lay low, not really do anything. And he knows how exhausting his acting process can be. So uh, they mailed him a letter or something, and they said, hey, we're really interested in you for this. And so they even enlisted the help of Leonardo DiCaprio, who he did Gangs of New York with right, Daniel right, Davis. Right, right. And uh, so even Leo was like, hey, dude, this is a great project. You should do it. And so he was like, okay. So the meeting was like two or three weeks later. And so he comes to the meeting and he has a binder, like this huge binder full of Lincoln information. And this was just for a meeting. It wasn't even for like, I'm going to do this. He was seeing if they were ready for it. So he comes in and he's like talking about Lincoln and talking about the history of the Civil War and about Lincoln's personal biography. And Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner looked at each other and they said, he knows more about this guy than we do for a meeting. And so they're talking to him and trying to convince him to do this. And he says, That's okay. crazy. So he says, okay, okay. I need a year. A year to prepare for Abraham Lincoln. What? Yes. So he goes to Abraham Lincoln's cabin that he was born in. He goes to the different spots. He does his history. He does his vocal work. I, have you seen Lincoln? Yeah. So you know how he has the high-pitched uh -huh. nasally voice? He did research on that because most people are like, I am Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's not how his voice was at all. People talk about how high-pitched his voice uh -huh. was so that he could reach the people in the back because there was no amplification at all. So he knew that that's what he needed to do. So he looked up that dialect. He worked with a coach. He did his movement. He like learned how to posture his body. He did his research about how his son died. He did his research. He did so much research. It took him a year of prep to do that. And that's just one movie. 
And so, so people think that so non actors that are not of the caliber of Daniel Day Lewis yeah. are going. Well, Daniel Day Lewis did it this way, so I'm mm-hmm. just gonna ape the 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 surface of his technique, which exactly. is staying in character on set, and think that I'm some kind of great actor. Mm-hmm. Or like I'm just gonna do random things, like oh yeah, you know. I keep using this example of like the Jared Leto nonsense. Jared Leto, like I'm gonna send a super <sighs> soaker filled with pee or whatever the fuck he did. I don't it's, know. It's is that almost a. It it seems almost like the, that that's what someone would do if they were afraid of not being able to play the character. Yeah, it's almost like I have to go this far into the absurdity mm-hmm. to prove to myself I'm taking the character seriously. It almost seems like that that's a not not even really like a I don't know. I'm not expressing myself very well on this particular point, but it seems kind of, cowardly is the wrong word. Or I mean, what would you say? Insecure. I would insecure. say okay, insecure. yeah. I mean, you know, I'm really struggling myself uh, with insecurity, and I'm getting better about it. I'm starting to like accept it, and that everyone is insecure. Like, I'm not the only one. So mm-hmm. calm down, so do the work anyway. Um, like that's a big thing that I'm working on currently. Um, but yeah, insecurity. I would say definitely, um, because, and you gotta understand too, like making a movie is some scary shit because you have people that are throwing millions of dollars at this movie and it better work or else you may not work again. You may not get another acting job. You may not get to, you know, get that second mansion or whatever, or you may not even just like be able to pay for your child support, you know, so you better do your best. And Jared Leto is also following the great Heath Ledger performance. You know, I hadn't thought of that. So, so much pressure is put on him already. Right. With, oh, he's the Joker. Oh, shit. So, not only do I have to make it my own, I have to make sure that I'm doing the best I can. I And so, he, Jared Leto's not my favorite actor. I'm not saying he's bad. He's just not my favorite. Um, But he does pick daring roles. And he does do well with them, I think. Like in Requiem for a Dream, terrified the shit out of me. I never saw that. Oh. oh. Mostly because I've heard so many people talk about it, and I don't want to subject myself to that experience at this particular stage in my life. It's the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. That bad. That great, but that bad. <laughs> like Darren Aronofsky just somehow gets under my skin and scares the bejesus. Like... You know, there's the art that's like comforting, like, oh yeah, let's let's all let's go through this really intense stuff, but it's all gonna wrap up in the end. Yeah, right? like a Broadway musical. Like a Broadway musical. Like Neil Simon, you know. Neil Simon has his merits. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I know that name. What, what what did Neil Simon do? The odd couple, barefoot in the park. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, yeah. Plaza Suite. Um, and those have its place. Absolutely. Like, not all art can be like, huh. Um, but just Darren Aronofsky just loves to get under your skin and really freak the hell out of you, I think. And he does a good job at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, Requiem for a Dream will fuck you up. It is scary as shit. I've seen it once. I want to see it again, but I need some time. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, wow. it's scary. And there's moments in it that I just remember. And it it's like camera work and, like, uh, editing and all this stuff. And I remember it viscerally. I remember how much it scared me. Did you watch it in high school? 
Uh, I saw bits of it in high school, and that's the part that I remember more than anything. And all it is is a simple, like, camera shake. And it's like Marlon Wayans screaming at the top of his lungs because he's, str- he's um, uh, drying out from a heroin. Uh, and he's in jail, and he's trying to, like, scream for help because he's, like, in so much pain. And he's just screaming, and, like, spit is, like, sliding down his chin. And he's screaming. Oh. Like, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it's really realistic. And, like, Jennifer Connelly basically does, goes to a sex party and sells her body so that she and her friends can get high. And then... Yeah, I don't need to watch that, Tim. I, you do, though, because you're a film <laughs> student. You need to. But... No, just, I'm just going to watch all the Hitchcock's films and uh, Stanley Kubrick. It'll be great. Pussy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's... But Look, so, I'm trying with the Broadway musicals. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get out of my comfort zone. See, I'll and get like, there. I'm not into musicals either, but I saw La La Land, and that's pretty damn good. But yeah. it's also really great, like, cinematically as mm-hmm. well. Because I was like, okay. And I had heard from other people, they're like, I don't like musicals, but this is awesome. So I was like, okay, you know, I like Ryan Gosling. I like Emma Stone. Cool. And, like, the director did Whiplash, and that was a fucking amazing movie. So, uh,. Yeah, so I was like, I want to check this out. And it's awesome. And I've been listening to the soundtrack a lot yeah. recently. Is, um, is it all original tunes? It's all original tunes, yeah. Uh. And, uh, you know, like, and Ryan Gosling, damn that man. Like, <laughs> in so many different ways, because he's just everything, you know? Like, he can be funny. He can be charming as fuck. He works his ass off and makes it look easy. He spent uh, six weeks practicing two hours a day for six days a week to learn the piano and he did and he's on camera doing these like really great jazz piano solos by himself and he was like we don't need a hand double it's him that's great yeah and um and so i want to pose a question to you actually real quick please and i asked my girlfriend this um what do you think is the director's most important movie like is it the first movie? Is it the second movie? The third movie? The last movie? Whatever. What do you think? Because I have a very strong opinion about this. Over a career? Yeah. And just assume that you don't know, or you do know it's your last movie, and you don't die before it's done. Uh, let me see. Well, that's, that's, that's not really a, a test. Well, see, first of all, that's completely subjective. Exactly, yeah. Um, I've seen all of Christopher Nolan's films Mm -hmm. and I still think that Memento is his best and that was his second film. Mm -hmm. Uh, His first film has great ideas and it's a really interesting script. Mm -hmm. Execution, not so great. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one of my favorite directors is uh, Wes Anderson. Yeah. And although Bottle Rocket is good, I've I've only seen it once. I was Mm kind of like, eh, whatever. And I liked Rushmore for performances, but as a movie, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Royal Tenenbaums, however, breaks my heart every Mm -hmm. time I watch it. And I've watched that movie countless times. And he hasn't done anything that good since. Grand Budapest Hotel Mm -hmm. was good. Um, Moonrise Kingdom was solid. I've seen all the movies, but like, he hit every emotional button Mm. for the Royal Tenenbaums. And it's just perfectly constructed. Mm. So... I'm trying to think, like, what I mean, other, like, not necessarily like important to the 
artist himself or herself or their self. Um, but just in terms of expectations or studio or just like, you know, most important overall. Well, the first film and any, any Hollywood director makes isn't going to be great, mostly because they're probably not going to get that much of a budget. Right. I mean, James Cameron's first film was like Piranha 2. Did you know that? I did. I did. <laughs> I mean, like, and then he did Terminator. Right? Yeah. So, or you have someone like, um, see, th- th- this is where my knowledge of film history is lacking because I, I'm not a voracious film watcher. Mm-hmm. I am more interested in the medium and what I can learn about the medium to mm-hmm. achieve my own ideas. Gotcha. So, I like watching movies. I mean, I've got my little small DVD collection right here. Uh, But in order to make a really... All right, let's take me for example. Mm -hmm. I'm a first-year MFA film student. Yep. My first film, 16mm film one, it's like four minutes long, Mm -hmm. black and white, no dialogue, shot entirely outdoors. I wrote the script not because I cared about it, not because I had a character that I really believed in. I wrote that entirely so that I could have some interesting camera angles, some cool shots, some cool locations, and give my character something to do. So that entire thing was to get my mistakes out of the way and, and get used to being on a set and actually directing. Right. I got a little bit of pushback for that um, from, from some professors hmm. uh, because I, it didn't seem like I was trying to tell a story. Now, mm. it's not a bad film. It's not great. I had some great actors I got to work with. Mm-hmm. It was a great experience. My next film, however, is so intensely personal and important to me mm-hmm. that it's this whole semester is going to just drive me insane because yeah. I, I care so much about realizing my vision. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that for my first film. And even for my documentary, I shot a documentary of... I finished shooting it um, mm. about a powerlifting gym outside oh. of Columbus. And that's a subject that I really, I'm totally into. I love powerlifting and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that to me is where I'm comfortable. So the first film I w- was entirely to get the experience. Mm-hmm. Documentary is, this is in my comfort zone and I know how to do it. And it's a subject that I like. Yeah. So that it's almost like a vacation almost. My next film is going to rip me apart. And if it's, 60% of what's in my head, it's going to be awesome. Nice. So, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, the directors, a lot of times, they're, they're shooting things. That, you know, they're a director for hire. It's not their idea. Mm. Um, I mean, then how many actors go like, oh, I just want to direct. Yeah. But then yeah. it's like, okay, the hill you have to climb to get to direct something you want to direct. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a stage director, if you're a theater director, you have a producer, right, who mm-hmm. owns a theater or who runs a theater who has his season or her season. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, okay, so we want you to direct this play, this play, and this play. And then the director goes, well, I want to direct this play. They're like, no, 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 not this season. So they have to direct things that they might not even like. Mm-hmm. That's brutal. Yeah. And then it's you have to find something you love about that project, like some little element about that project to make the whole project worth it. Right. Very few directors have the luxury of actually doing their own projects. And the other thing, too, is... You talk to Martin Scorsese, half the time he's fighting the producers on who he's allowed to cast. It's Martin Scorsese. Like, it's like, what the let fuck? the guy do whatever he wants. Like, Gangs, yeah. of, Gangs of New York, he did not want Cameron Diaz. Right. But they wouldn't give him the budget unless he hired, you know, a big name actress for that role. He wanted Sarah Polly. 
Oh man, which would have been freaking great. Yeah. Okay. Has to has to get Cameron Diaz because the only way he's going to get the budget to get all the stuff that he needs. Okay. Yeah. So even someone as you know luminous, if you will, as Scorsese, doesn't get what he wants. Yeah. So I think, and in order to actually, I'm not even sure what your original question was. Which what <laughs> film is the most important for a director? Right. Um, I, I don't know. It's that's I don't even know how to answer that. That's kind of a roundabout way of just dancing around yeah. the, the issue. Okay. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I do know that there is something about the process that's very cool. Yeah. Even if you don't really like when I was gripping on uh, on uh, it gets worse. Mm. I just like being on set. I couldn't care less about four person relationship dramas. I mean, come on, like I don't care. Yeah. yeah. At all. However. Every day of that shoot, I was completely engaged with what was happening behind the scenes, decisions that were being made, um, just just technically what was happening on the set. So you can put me on any film set mm-hmm. as long as the director is not a complete crazy person, and I'll have a good time. You right. know that that's like the craft part of it. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I know that I know that Christopher Nolan after Memento was offered Insomnia, which he did yeah. not write. That was a remake of a Norwegian film. Yep. So that was his director for hire project. Mm-hmm. So Nolan has only done one director for hire project. Oh yeah. Everything realize. else has been completely self motivated. Yeah. He wanted to do a film about um uh, what's the aviator? Howard How- Hughes. Howard Hughes. And actually had attached Jim Carrey. To play Howard Whoa. Hughes. And then he's going in pre-production. He's getting everything set up. He wrote the script. And then Scorsese announces The Aviator. And the project shit. got shut down. Can you believe that? No. Yeah. That's awesome. So, and then, but then he goes in and he's like, you know what? I have this great idea for how to do Batman. Hey. And his wife is his producer. And they go in. They convince him. He does Batman Begins. You know, then he does The Dark Knight. Dark Knight Rises. Mm. Does Interstellar. I can't wait to see Dunkirk. Have you seen that preview? Dude. Oh, my God. I feel so claustrophobic watching that trailer. <laughs> Holy shit. Looks amazing. Yeah. He's a rare case. Never yes. went to film school. Really? He was an English lit major in college. He, he split his time growing up between uh, Chicago and, and England. Mm-hmm. His brother co-wrote... Um, he wrote Memento based off of his brother's short story. Yes, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then his brother w- co-wrote um, Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's in a very rarefied position of someone who gets to do projects that he wants to do. Yes. Okay. Then he gets people like uh, you know Tim Burton. Okay. Mm-hmm. I still think the best Tim Burton film I've seen is Edward Scissorhands, followed closely by Ed Wood. Yeah. Okay. So you've got... I mean, yeah, you know, I love a whole bunch of Tim Burton films, but now he's strictly doing director for hire Disney projects that slap his aesthetic on them. And that's not fair of me to say that because if I could be Tim Burton, yeah. I would love that. Right. But he he's gotten to a point where he's almost on autopilot. I don't feel like there's any Tim Burton soul in it. it mm. Tim Burton is is an aesthetic at this point. Yeah. And he has a stable of actors that are really good mm-hmm. and do their thing mm-hmm. and are consistent. But I mean, like Tim Burton film doesn't mean the same thing it used to mean. Did you see Big Eyes by any chance? I did not see Big okay, Eyes. See, I haven't either, and I wanted to. That's got um, Chris Christoph Waltz, yeah. Amy Adams. Uh, see, that I probably more... should see that because that seems that seems like something that would be more in line with his earlier. It's more his vein, I think, than right. before. Yeah. Um, I don't know though. Yeah, yeah d- directing is is like. 
I, I was I was in class once, and um, the professor was saying, "Hey, so what do you want to do in this film world? What kind of career do you want?" And I said, "Well, you know, I want to direct." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's why entirely here. why I'm here is to learn how to direct. And uh, I kind of got this answer of like, "Well, you know, very few people get to direct. You should look around to see what else uh, you can focus on." He didn't say it that way, and yeah. I'm, 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 but that's how I interpreted it. Mm-hmm. Was, hey, you know, very few people are able to direct or get to direct, and very, and even a few smaller percentage of that are actually good at it. Right, right. But for me, it's just that's that's it for me. Like I can't. That's all I want to do yeah, is yeah, yeah. is take the ideas that I have, the scripts that I write, and direct them. I am not averse to directing someone else's material. Mm-hmm. Not at all. But at the same time, like the ideas that I have come to me cinematically. And so I'm here to learn everything about filmmaking so that I can realize my vision on the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is not easy. No. And that's the other thing too. Like what was funny because when I first, I think the first conversation I had with you, we were talking, you, you know, I was asking you questions about acting, mm-hmm. talking about filmmaking. And, and we both kind of agreed that it's hard. Like it's really fucking difficult and it's something that we're sort of compelled to do that is unbelievably uncomfortable. Yeah. It is not like, we're going to get some friends together and shoot a film. It's going to be fun. Yeehaw! It's like, no, you are testing your resolve physically, mentally, yep. spiritually, emotionally. I mean, can you work with people? Yeah. That's something that I, I'm, it's like, hey, how can I manage these different personalities on a set mm-hmm. to achieve what I want to achieve? What do I need to give this actor to get the performance that I want? Does my vision for the performance clash with the actor's vision for the performance? Right. That's a whole nother thing mm-hmm. where, I mean, I would get into these really intense discussions. And this is why I loved working with Morgan. Yeah. Because I could I could talk to him for like a good 10 minutes about like the emotional arc of the character. And like the scene was man runs uphill. Yeah. But when I'm talking to Morgan, like he cared about the character so much that we were able to really determine how that's going to express itself. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you get notes after like your first performance or like after opening night? Do you, do you, are you getting notes throughout the entire run of the show? Um, I have before. And then I, there's been most times where I have not. Some people do do that. Some people don't. Um, if it's something that I'm still struggling with and I'm like, yeah, send, give me notes. Please help me. Like I, or if it's something that I'm really excited about, like, yeah, like fine tune me, do all this stuff. Yeah. Great. Cause you're never going to get to the end, but if you just like constantly try and find it fresh, uh, then that's fun, I think. But then there's sometimes when it's like, okay, thank you. Your job's done. Please just stop. Um, so yeah, uh, it can be both. But do you still enjoy playing the character after that first performance? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I mean, like, I love doing my homework. And now that I'm learning how to do it more efficiently and not just, like, go down a rabbit hole of, like, research and stuff, I love that. And I love collaborating. And I love talking with the director. But I would be lying if I said that I didn't love being in front of an audience. So you do yeah. like being on stage? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh man, are you kidding me? 
like it's funny because this entire conversation i've been talking about like the craft and like the history and the science and like all this other stuff but it's like oh you you like being on stage you're your performer got it yeah and it's there (laughs) that's all there that like loving the craft loving like studying and doing that stuff and like finding out about david mamet now that i'm doing glenn gary glenn ross finding out about what the 1980s were like you know finding out about what it was like to live in the time period when ronald reagan was the president like that stuff's great but it's also really fucking great to say a line that you weren't expecting to be funny and have the audience laugh Mm -hmm. that's such a oh that's such a good feeling when you're not even trying to be funny or you know it's funny, but if you don't, it's like the more serious you play it, the funnier it is. That is, I that is a high that I you can't get anywhere else. I don't think. Who's directing that that show? Uh, Jonathan. Oh, what's his name? Uh, Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> Grad director. <laughs> and when is that show gonna be? Uh, up. It's end of February and February. very beginning of March. Oh, so you're 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 diving in tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah, like we. I don't know when this is going to air, but yeah, diving in very soon. So we are diving in tomorrow, January 9th, two thousand seventeen. Uh, are you off book yet? No. I love asking actors that. I the answer know. is always I need no. To be. No, and I need to be. <laughs> but we have a week. Uh, we're going to be doing a week of table work, and then we're going to start uh, rehearsing it. So I still have a week. But David Mamet dialogue is so difficult to memorize. Why? Just because if you want it to get if you want to get it uh, letter perfect, which I do and I really try really hard to do that. And what that's what we're learning to do is learn it letter perfect and know it so well that we could say it in our sleep backwards. Um, his word choice, how, uh, sometimes he writes something and then there's a dot 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 and then he finishes that thought and goes to something else and it's so it's like almost naturalistic dialogue but it's slightly different um so it's not iambic pentameter no and that's actually so easy to memorize that's what everyone tells me i've never actually tried to memorize iambic pentameter but everyone says oh yeah it's it's great yeah Shakespeare, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, because it's some for some reason it just flows. Like I can memorize that lickety split, done. Ma'am, it's hard. It's hard. Like so, let me see. Uh, So my first, like my first monologue, which is the opens up the show. It's I'll just say like a little bit of it. John, John, John. Okay, John, John. Look, you're the Glengarry the Glengarry Highlands leads. You're sending Roma out. Fine. He's a good no- man. We know what he is. He's fine. All I'm saying, you look at the boards. He's throwing. Wait, wait, wait. He's throwing the, them away. He's throwing the leads away. I mean, that doesn't sound that difficult, but it's like all the wait, 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 because there's also like. Is he on no, the phone? No. He's no. he's in a restaurant trying to sell this guy that he it deserves to have the good um, leads okay, okay. for the real estate. Is, is this the guy played by Kevin Spacey in the movie? No, I'm playing the part that Jack Lemmon played in the movie. But you're talking to the Kevin Spacey character. Yes. Got it, okay. Yes. Right. Um, so that's how I describe it to people. And they're like, oh, the movie, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm playing but Jack without, Lemmon. Without the Alec Baldwin scene. Right, which, which is, is so amazing. Good. It's so good. And there are some <laughs> productions I've seen. Excuse me. There's some productions that actually include that. Really? Are they allowed to? Do they have to get special permission from I, David? 
they might have finagled it a little bit. Did he direct the film? No. Uh, did James not? Foley did. Who's James Foley? What else did he do? It's a very good question. I don't know. Okay. Well, um, let's forget about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 1992. So I don't, I'm not okay. as familiar with that. Yeah, I remember the first time I, wa- I watched it because uh, I, was, uh, I was working in Cape May, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and the original Shelley Levine was played by Bob Prosky. Okay. He was also in a TV show called Hill Street Blues back in the day. Wow. Okay. So he retired to Cape May, uh-huh. and his like two of his sons are actors. Another one of his sons is a does post production and is a professor at like George Washington University or something like that. Mm. So I was working at a movie camp, and I'm hanging out with the Prosky boys. And so I did a little research, and they're like, oh, my God, like if you get to meet Bob Prosky, he's the original Shelley Levine. So I'm like, all right. So I read Glengarry Glenn Ross, and uh, – then I watched the movie, and I'm, and it turns out that one of the he was really disappointed that he didn't get cast as mm. he had to compete with Jack Lemmon, who has more of a film career yeah. than Prosky did. Yeah, uh, yeah, but um, what an awesome movie, dude! I mean, Ed Harris. Oh, Ed Harris, <laughs> Al Pacino. Well, here, okay, here's another question. Yeah, you're doing a play that has a popular film adaptation. Yep. Do you have to consciously avoid? Referencing that, how how far can you take the referencing of the film material in your own performance, or can see, you? See, now that's a totally personal question. Like, are some, you uncomfortable with how I'm personal so that question was? Uncomfortable with all of this. I, I, I need to go. Um, no, so you know, I there's some actors that get anything away from me. I'm doing my thing. No, get away from me. There's some people that are like. Give me it. I want to steal all of it. I'm going to take every ounce of it that I can. I'm kind of at the halfway point. I want to get to a certain point to where I know the like I know the script really well. I know my lines as well as I can. And so I want to be in the middle of rehearsals and then I want to watch stuff because what I get a huge high out of is watching what other people are doing with it. And so I can be like, "Oh, that's that's awesome. That's not how I'm going to do it, but that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And so after this process is over, I'm probably going to watch the movie again and be like, Jack Lemon, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Holy shit. You are so good. Um, so I might do that. I might, uh, but I just, I love watching what people do with the material. Um, and if you're in the true Meisner sense of the yeah. process, reacting to other characters it's not going to be a facsimile of the film version of it never because you're you're playing off of yeah okay all right that makes sense and it might like sound like it like some people might like follow the rhythms of it but if we're doing our job right uh, it's there's so much more juice like internal stuff that's different so things are going to be different and the um, actor that I'm working opposite of in that scene in particular who's playing the Kevin Spacey character Michael Fraser he's totally different than Kevin Spacey and I'm totally different than Jack Lemmon Michael is uh, 22 Kevin Spacey was playing someone that was probably in his mid 30s I'm playing I'm 27 I'm playing a guy in his 60s there's no way no conceivable way that I can bring every ounce of humanity to that. I can bring my humanity to it as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Like so, okay. I had a revelation the other day, uh, about a week ago, that I was reading through the play and I was doing and was working on it, 
I said, oh, I will never do this perfectly. Ever. It, it, like, there, even if it was, I, it, it just couldn't in any way, shape, or form. And as someone who is a closet perfectionist trying so hard to get away from that, I was, I was so relieved because I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't know what it's like to be at a company for 30 years and know my job better than someone who just came on. But I do know what it's like to talk to somebody who's a superior that doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. And I know their job better than they do. I know what that's like. And that happens in the play. Mm -hmm. So it's going back to that as if that I was talking about. Right. I know what it's like to do that. The very basic truth of that, I can get behind. I have that ego of I know your job better than you do because you just fucking got here. So how dare you tell me that you're not going to do this for me when I know that this is the way that it's done. Or I can use that as kind of a I can lie and say, hey, this is how it is. You need to give this to me. I've been here. I know I can know I can wrap my head around that pretty easily. So uh so that way you, you can achieve the emotional uh, imperatives, I guess you could say, of the scene yeah. authentically mm -hmm. without it, without people being like, wow, there's a 60-year-old man on stage exactly. who's really cranky. Right. So they can buy it because the, the emotion is, is authentic. Yes. So, and that's so no one's ever going to be like, oh, Tim is 60 years old. <laughs> ever. <laughs> like I can try my best. I can like. Are they going to give body. you like gray hair or wig? They or might something like do like a little that. bit. They might like add in the some temples, and stuff. right? Yeah, yeah maybe. Like yeah, <laughs> but like the bad like educational theater. But and it's also going to be in um, a classroom too, because there's this weird thing that we're doing where we're doing it in rep with another show, and it's going to be in one of the classrooms. So it's going to be really up close. So I think they're going to try and avoid it as much as possible. Um, Wait. The in one of the classrooms on campus? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be like in the round? No. Or? No. It's Well, kind of. Yeah. It's going to be in uh, Kantner 308. That um, is the third floor. Third floor. Um, I think I have a class in there. there so you know where or the office is? Are those what the mirrors are? Like the big mirrors on the no, walls? No, it's the other one. It's That's 306. This is 308. Okay. Um, it's across the hall from the office. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to find out you, Tuesday. You will find out <laughs> soon. Wait. Tuesday. Yeah, I have, I have uh, directing actors oh. class. I'm like oh, I'm hanging okay. out with all the seniors. Okay, because I'm teaching an acting class uh, from nine to ten twenty. I was like, uh, are you no, in class? No, 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 uh? no, no, no. Listen, if you see me in an acting class, um, I have. You have seen me in an acting class. If you see me <laughs> in another acting class, Tim, I'll be a happy camper. It'll be weird. You'll be, be like, I, I wonder will, if Robert's okay. I will love seeing you uncomfortable. Essentially, again. Yeah. Yeah, man, that class was brutal. See, I don't and know how was, you guys do it. I, I seriously, it, it's it's one of those things that we lie to ourselves a lot. I, I respect I respect what you guys were able to do because the, the vulnerability required to give a truly authentic performance is so uncomfortable for me because you know I've spent quite a bit of time building a kind of outward stoic. Mm -hmm. Like a practiced stoicism is what I call it, which is how mm. I present myself to the world. Yeah. Now, in order to play a character that I didn't write, I have to completely shed that and be completely vulnerable and naked in front of a bunch of people. Yep. And it's it's something I don't have. I don't think I have what it takes to do that professionally. I 
am struggling with that personally, my uh, with vulnerability, and um, that's why I'm in counseling. I mean, I talk to my counselor about this stuff a lot, and I'm just now starting to be like, okay, I think I can really show up and be like, this is really truly who I am. Now I'm really going to express this. Now I'm really going to just do this. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the last two years that I've really started to really uh, feel comfortable enough being that vulnerable. It's a lot of trust that I thought I had, but I didn't. And I'm just learning to be like, okay, and this is going to sound corny and cheesy or whatever, but um, just saying like, okay, nothing bad is going to happen. The worst that's going to happen is they're going to say, okay, that wasn't very good. Here's what can be better. And they're there to help. That's why, and that's another reason why I'm getting a master's degree, an MFA, and here at Ohio, because I know that they're on my, I like, I, it's taken me a while to really accept, but they're on my side. They're here to help me. And um, expressing that vulnerability is hard. It's so hard. What people don't understand is that people aren't sitting around all day and they'll be like, oh, well, and some people might do this, but they're not like, okay, I'm going to yell at this part. I'm going to cry at this part. I'm going to be, I'm going to laugh uproariously at this part. Da, 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 da. No, like it's, there's so much more. It, theoretically, there's more to it than that. Um, so it's just, it's really hard to kind of just go in there and do the daydreaming stuff and go in and be like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm going to go there as much as I can. And I don't know what's going to happen. And that's a really vulnerable place because people want to know. People want to know from each day to the next what's going to happen. And that's why people um, have those stable jobs. Nothing wrong with it at all. I don't blame them. I've fantasized about going back to that stuff. <laughs> constantly it's so i mean it's a weird fantasy like i mean i talk to my friends and they're like oh my god we want to do what you're doing that sounds awesome i'm like i kind of want to do what you're doing sometimes like i want it but i know me that if i were to do that the what if would drive me more crazy than i'm being driven crazy right now yeah. um so all that to say yeah vulnerability is scary especially as a guy Especially as like raised in Texas, Southern guy that like, I don't want to show things. How many shotguns do you own? Today? I don't have any guns or anything, but I'm not one of those kinds of Texans. But I was raised with those kinds of Texans. Right. Um, and you know, like there's a valid place for that. Like having that practice stoicism that you're talking about. That's there. Um, but that's not me. And I mean, I was raised by uh, my parents obviously and <laughs> but my dad uh is the most sensitive guy in his family like he of his brothers he's definitely the most sensitive so i didn't feel nearly as much shame from that until i got to like scouts and stuff but that's a whole nother can of worms mm -hmm. Um, so like emotion has always been there, but then now like using it in service of something is scary. It's scary. And like, is that cathartic at all? Oh yeah. Oh man. Oh God. It's so cathartic. And it's so much fun. If you really do it, it's so much fun. Like you could just be in this like really dark place afterwards and just be like, Whoa, that was intense. 
because I did a scene from Angels in America in an acting class that uh, my friend Amber Dupuis taught in Austin. It was fu- it was so much fun because I've always wanted to do that scene because it's about um, wait which scene? Uh, it's a it's a scene where a man comes home uh, from a walk that he always did, and this is set in 1980s and um, AIDS crisis is going on, and this is a closeted gay man. And he goes on walks and he just thinks about like, okay, I can't show that I'm gay. Like I got to And he's like super Republican and like it's the Mormon character, the Mormon character. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So he has all these things saying gay is not okay. Do not, you cannot be gay. And he is. Um, so, but he's trying to repress it and repress it and sh- shove it down. And so he comes home and his wife who is insane um, burns dinner and is saying, where were you? And so if he admits where he was and what he was doing and what he's been thinking about, she will kill herself, essentially. It's not in the text, but it's in the subtext. And so my friend helped me realize that. Well, I've got some personal history with uh, girlfriends being a little nutty. Mm-hmm. Um, not now. Like not my current girlfriend. If you're listening, current girlfriend. If you're listening, Angela, I love you. It's okay. You're not. You're not too insane. Um, <laughs> so, I have some experience with that. And so when my friend unlocked that for me, and because I trust her so much, it immediately I knew exactly what it was. I knew exactly like just not even mentally, but like my entire body knew what that meant. Of like she will kill herself if you let on about anything you have to stop her from getting answers and her objective was to get answers so we were doing the scene and my scene partner starts talking about how you know you look mean you're just so upset all the time and it's it's killing me it's killing us I don't know what's going on and like something in that at that particular time just made me start weeping uncontrollably and so my friend, who was hearing me cry, immediately snapped her fingers and pointed at me and said, breathe, breathe, Tim, breathe. And so I started breathing, and I just like let it all go. And this was the first time I'd ever cried on stage, and I wasn't trying to cry. I wasn't wow. going for it. Like It just was happening. And when I first started acting, my goal was to cry on stage. And just because I was like, I want to cry. I want to be dramatic. I want people to be like, that's so dramatic. <laughs> and then like as I've gotten on, that's ne- that hasn't been the goal for a long time. But it was happening. So I was like, oh, this is what it's like. Oh, shit. Like this is, this is happening. So then afterwards, um, my friend sat us down and said, so how was that? And my scene partner was like, that was really intense, you know, this stuff. And so I was just like kind of doing the like 500 yard gaze, like just what happened? Not like it wasn't traumatic. Like she wasn't like dredging up, like, well, think about your mother dying. She was just like, I was just there and I just expressed something super authentic. And, uh, so she was like, okay, cool. Thank you, Jennifer. Tim. I was like, that was, that felt good good she said okay you okay i said yeah she said so you really went to a dark place there i was like yeah and she was like being super calm and super soft with me like not being like okay that was great 
But she, and so she's like, okay, so you went to a dark place. I said, yeah, yeah, that was really intense. She said, yeah. Do you have a good time? And I thought about it for like half a second. I said, yeah. She's like, would you do it again? I said, yeah, I would. So that's what, that's when it became clear to me, like, I'm not doing this for, like, fame would be okay. Like, I have my issues with it, and we can talk about that later, but money, (laughs) the chances of getting millions of dollars are so close to nil, it's not even funny. So if you're doing it for money, get out. Um, So in that moment, that's what solidified for me, like, okay, I'm going to be doing this, and it's going to be really tough, and... I got to show people who I truly am. I got to really like open up and do it. And yeah, but, and I said the work, the craft, the art, the research, the just learning as much as you can about everything. Cause you never know what you're going to use. Like some, one of, uh, my favorite things, and I'm going to butcher the hell out of the quote. There's a uh, acting coach in uh, Vancouver, Matthew Harrison. And uh, he says, when you are working on a character, you're not an artist. You're a craftsperson. But when you're not, you're an artist because you are absorbing as much as you can about everything. You are researching the dark ages with the bubonic plague just because it interests you you are watching a great symphony because you because you just want to like experience that that's when you're an artist but when you're actually working on it you're a craftsperson because you have to apply the craft and you have to not worry about the results you have to do the process and when you do the process then you let it go in your performance and theoretically you can just let it flow and do whatever and uh, so that really struck a chord with me. And um, I think I totally got away from the question. Um, the reason I asked uh, the, the original question is because I had another uh, another uh, professor somewhat dismissively refer to acting class as group therapy. Okay. And... I mean, first day of class, you get in there and you're around a bunch of people you don't really know. Yeah. And you have to play these getting to know you games. And I yeah. just want to crawl into the closet and not talk to anybody. And right. You have to do it. And th- But then when I... So for me, I don't need group therapy because I, I, I talk to a lot of people close to me about mm-hmm. emotional issues. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to name every single member of my family, but they all know who they are. Yeah. But I did notice that even though I was very kind of like, oh, this is, this is nonsense. I don't feel like dealing with it. There were other people in the class that it was very important for. Yeah. Like I saw people in the class that were really opening up like the second class because they just had not been ever given an opportunity mm-hmm. to express themselves in that way. And that's when I was like, oh, my. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I got a whole nother level of respect for actors just based on that. Mm-hmm. Like that's your baseline. Yeah. Your baseline, like first day of acting class is like, okay, you have to get out there. You have to touch strangers. Right. 
and for me, I'm just don't touch me. Yeah, who are yeah. you? Don't, you don't, you don't have to touch me. Right. You know, it's like hey, this is uh, Janelle and Tim. This is Janelle. Meet her, and I need y'all to make out right now. Because okay? we're Go. doing Boom. a sex scene later, and you know we have to do this, this, and this, and you know don't worry, we're going to be professional. And I'm just I'm sitting there like what yeah and then, then then the most terrifying thing is when you perform a scene and they're like oh, then they, you get some notes and you have to do it again i'm like oh my god i just went through hell to do that two minute scene in my acting class that no one else will ever see and now i have to do it again yep and incorporate those notes ain't it great <laughs> oh my god it's brutal yeah. and i mean oh, and then the other um the difference between like film acting and stage acting is mm. With film acting, you can do 20 takes from one camera angle yeah. of the scene, and the director gets to pick his favorite performance. Mm-hmm. You don't get that luxury when you're on stage. Nah. It's just a completely, do you prefer one or the other? Because, I mean, I was watching you on set the other week, and it was like, you guys were like marathoners yeah, that going was... through that, that shoot. That was intense. I mean, yeah. just me sitting there watching, going like, they're doing it again, they're doing it again. Or or Claire, when she did that really emotional oh, breakdown scene, was... was doing it over and over and over and over. And I, I was I, I was kind of cringing for her. Yeah. Like, I can't believe you're going through that that many times. It's unbelievable. Claire is just a force of nature, though. Like, she, I wish she was the norm, but she's not. That's extraordinary what she did. Um, she works so hard. And she's able to go to those places again and again and again and again and again. She's also hypersensitive too, so that helps. Mm-hmm. And she she's also a senior this year. Okay. So she's gone through this program. So she's now fine-tuning it versus learning it. So she knows how to push her buttons and she knows what she needs to do to get to that place. Because if you saw her Mrs. Packard, which I know you did, mm-hmm. I mean, what she goes through in that, holy shit. It. like going and like being like drowned being stripped naked i mean holy shit i mean so she's top tier she's a workhorse she's a workhorse not as a compliment that is absolutely <laughs> a compliment yeah yeah um and i just want to back up real quick to the group therapy comment I don't think it's group therapy. I don't think it should be group therapy. I think it can be cathartic. I think it can be therapeutic, not therapy. I really, really strongly believe that it can't be therapy because I am in counseling, like I said, and I'm also taking acting class, and I really strive to make that separate Okay. because therapy, I'm learning about my personal behavior patterns, about what's blocking me, what I can do when those blocks come up. But in acting, since I use my imagination, it's about really opening up and learning to use my imagination to fulfill something. Um, And that can be therapeutic, like crying in class. Mm -hmm. I did use some real life stuff that happened to work. But that also was something that I've been needing to get out for a long time. So in ways that helped. But I also trusted my prof- uh, my teacher so much. Like Amber and I are really good friends. And it took a long time for me to trust her that much to really get me to that place. And she knew me that well. She knew what to say when. You don't always get that. Um, and a therapist is also going to like a therapist, you go there 
and you just talk and then you get your feedback of like okay so i heard this is this right and i i want you to know it's okay and these things and even in a classroom in acting it's all process but you're still there's expectations and there's still you're doing this in order to do this therapy right. needs to just be pure acting class is learning based if that makes any sense yeah, well also, also with, with acting you're you're there's a goal right. there's a performance you yes. don't go to therapy to learn how to perform something oh well, I mean, exactly so and there are probably things in therapy that you can you apply oh absolutely to your acting yeah but I don't think that you take acting into a therapy session, into a counseling session. Well, rather. I mean, there are like role playing things and things like that you can do. And like talking to an empty chair and imagining that that's your mom and like trying to do stuff like that. But that's that's different. Yeah, that's totally different. Um, at least how I'm being trained. There are some training programs that that's a lot of what they do, which is a little scary for me, I think, because it's like if you're really delving into the psyche of a person, that's kind of dangerous territory, because if you like misstep once, you could severely fuck somebody up. Well, here's another thing we're dealing with. You've got a graduate program, okay, yep. master's program. You also have the undergrads. OK, the ages 18 to 22. Yeah are unbelievably fluid as far as personal development is concerned. Mm -hmm. And your brain, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, yep. okay? And I don't know anything. I haven't done all the research, but I hear that your, your brain isn't fully developed till you're 25. Yes, I've heard that right? too. Is it a good idea to train actors as undergrads? Isn't that kind of a weird territory like I, I i don't think that if i had been doing acting training i was i was in two plays when i was an undergrad mm. if i had actually been training and doing the acting classes i don't think that would have been good for me i a hundred percent your thoughts my thoughts well you get some butter you put it in the pan <laughs> um no i i maybe controversially agree with you that I personally don't think it's the best idea because in that time you're learning who you are away from your previous circumstances. So you're really truly learning who you are. Acting class can help facilitate that. Yeah, for sure. But you also need to learn that the outside world is not an acting class. Right. The outside world is going to chew you up and spit you out most of the time. That's not a pes that's not pessimism. That's not definitely not optimism. That's I just think that's realism. That's the reality of it. If you go to everybody and say like, "Oh, I need this and that and that," and someone yells at you and that they can't do it, and you start breaking down crying, you will look insane. You will look hypersensitive. You will get calluses on your soul. You will like all these things because you are just so raw. And the real world does not want rawness. The real world wants your persona. The real world wants your barriers. The real world does not want to hear every single thing that's going on with you. You don't go up to somebody and say, hey, how are you? And they say, oh, my God. I just, I'm so freaked out. Like, I mean, I do that sometimes, but I just, <laughs> I'm trying to get better about that. But um, you don't have somebody explain every part of their day. Most people are just going to say, okay, I'm fine, which, you know, 
is kind of getting away from it. And that's what I'm breaking down in acting class of like, I can't just be polite. I can't just be the Southern gentleman that I've been raised to be. I got to like really like, no, I want this now in an acting class. Mm -hmm. But I know in the real world, that's not going to fly. So I'm learning how to negotiate having the, someone said like an actor needs to have the heart of a rose and the, the hide of a, a rhinoceros. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm learning how to negotiate that. I feel like when you're that age, you're just, your heart is a rose and you don't know what to do with it. And you're, and some people um, are able to like develop more of a thick skin and some people it kind of fucks them up. And I've seen it fuck people up and I've seen people expect things. And I mean, you know, well, and that people expect to be treated with quote unquote respect when they're not, the people aren't being disrespectful. They're just being a little rude right now because they don't have time to really deal with the person. So they're just like, get, okay, did just the tickets are over there. Fuck off. And they're like, oh, what the fuck? I didn't do anything. And they take it personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I mean, that happens now. Like, I mean, when I'm going off and doing something and someone like snaps at me, it takes me back and I'm, I'm a sensitive guy and it pisses me off or freaks me out. But I also know like, okay, nothing personal about that. So I just, I just, I haven't really articulated it to myself why I have a problem with it, but it's basically because your brain is developing in that time. You're so young. Yeah, if you if you had met me when I was an undergrad, you put that person next to me now, you would not see the same person. Right back at you. That yeah. that didn't that didn't even come close to being you, who I am now. Did not even come. I wasn't close to being who I am now. Yeah. Until twenty five. Yeah, I would say like I really didn't get to this point until like I had glimpses of it maybe before, but I had to be like super comfortable with you. I had probably had to be a little bit drunk or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't really, really, truly. But then if if we don't have training, then how are we going to cast 20 year olds? Well, 20, clearly you get 36 year olds and <laughs> you just put a shit ton of makeup on him yeah child actors yeah. I mean. oh god oh man that, I'm so it, fascinated by that but them. here's the other thing I saw in the library mm-hmm. directed by Shelley yep um, Kelsey yes and Sana yes projected so much maturity like I I would I could have sworn both of them were, were MFA students yeah I could have sworn Sana was actually at least in her mid-30s and wasn't just a year older than her daughter uh-huh. in the play. And, and Kelsey was playing a... a uh, detective. Yeah, she's playing a detective. Yeah. And she walked around the stage like she was in charge and like she was doing an investigation. I was thoroughly impressed. And they're, they're you know, early 20s. Yeah. So they were able to get that character in a, in a convincing way. And mm-hmm. I don't know either of them well enough to... Say, oh, yeah. no, they're emotionally compromised by their acting training because yeah. I, I don't know that. I haven't been yeah. around it. But I, I, I will say that there are, I mean, I, I've, I've seen some amazing acting here already. Yeah. It's been really impressive. 
and I, I can't wait to see the shows this upcoming semester. Again, I'll take all the credit. Thank you. <laughs> Especially Glenn Gehrig and Ross, man. Yeah, That's, you know. Oh, I mean, dude. it is the lead character. It's going to be great. I think I, have, I probably have a copy of that play around here somewhere. Ooh. Yeah, it's going to be a, fantastic. It's a beast. Um, but, yeah, so, of course there are exceptions. I mean, what I was saying is total generalities. And I think a lot of what is great about this training is they do break you down and then they bring you back up and they bring you piece by piece. And so like the seniors, I think are able to, you know, like, okay, that hurt my feelings, but I'm just going to keep on going. But I mean, Kelsey and Sana though are also fantastic actresses anyway. And they were also cast in those parts for those reasons, mm-hmm. because Kelsey, I thought she was a master's degree student whenever I was visiting here. And when she was back the next year, I was like, wait, what the, f- what the fuck are you doing here? Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm a, I was a sophomore last year or what? No. Yeah. She was a sophomore when I saw her. I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Yeah. Like she's, she's just this raw, great talent and she can do that. And she can project that, uh, authority. And that's that you can learn how to do that, but you there also comes a natural like you pay attention to Kelsey when she's on stage. Yeah. And Sana is a very maternal. She's a very loving, very caring person in general. And so she exudes older. Okay. Um That makes sense. So so the cat so part of that is casting someone who has the strengths that play to the role that yes. you want. And Shelly knows them very well. Okay. Well, and then, so yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it just shows how important that that there's so many different little threads that are tying together a collaborative art, like yeah. like theater or or film. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. I remember one time I asked a friend of mine who who is an actress in Philly. Have you ever been cast? I could, I could ask you this. Have you ever been cast in a role you didn't think you were appropriate for? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. How, how do you deal with that? Do you just have to trust that the director knows what they're doing? I mean, or do you just fall back on the same craft? I well, do my research. I build the character. I, I mean, mean, theoretically, the craft is what's going to get me through. You know. Um, I mean, you know, there's some actors that like they always say, "I'm not going to approach the character the same way ever." That's valid. Um, but I mean, Viola Davis, mm-hmm. she will probably tackle a script pretty much the same way each time and so since since she went to juilliard she has a lot of tools in she the toolbox. Really? yeah oh, she wow. went to Juilliard. oh man yeah she's like classically trained hardcore and she's amazing yeah who fences i need to see that. oscar she's gonna win the oscar yeah i am 90 percent positive wow about that um she's incredible she's amazing oh we're missing the golden globes oh darn <laughs> I mean, like, see, and I just... I'm sorry, Tim, to pull you away from the Golden Globes. Son of a bitch. I want to see La La Land win Best Musical. <sighs> Which it will. It will. It, it will. will. It will. I'm just hedging my bets. Isn't it musical or comedy? Isn't it the same? Musical category? or comedy, musical yeah. Or comedy. Yeah, because there's not enough, like, musicals, straight musicals. We don't, to have, do we don't have enough serious musicals. I know, right? <laughs> like, I just want to cry when I'm watching a musical. Um, I actually wrote a treatment for a musical when I was in, uh, when I was an undergrad. My, for my playwriting class and and the funny thing is 
I had seen so few musicals, and the only reason I the only reason I took playwriting is because they didn't have a screenwriting class. Gotcha. So I'm in there, and one of the assignments was write a treatment for a musical. So I did the most, like, what I thought was the most anti-musical musical that all. I mean, you had to write down like what style of song it was, and what the rhythm was, and what the mm. lyrical content, and like all that kind of stuff. And I basically did the the punk rock version of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. But all the song titles were like "fuck you all" and <laughs> and you don't know shit or and you know like it, it was all like I was, as the Brits would say, taking the piss. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end of it, they voted what the best musical was in the class, the best musical. They're like, "What musical would you most want to see?" And mine won. Well, there you go. And I was sitting there like, "You got to be kidding me, guys!" I was I was kidding, and they're like, "They're like, no, but you know, Robert, that's actually a really good idea." Yeah. So I've actually thought about maybe someday down the line. Hey. Writing the book for that and getting a composer might, might be interesting. That would be really. Of cool. course, it would be like a metal, punk yeah. rock. Yeah. Well, I mean, like <laughs> it now, would be off, off, off Broadway. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to see that on Broadway. Come on, really? No. Like rich white old fucks. Yeah, they want they want to see yeah, that shit. Not gonna want to see it. But high school students. Yeah. On a class trip. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> hey, let's go see. Fuck you, the musical. There's, I mean, but there's a lot of there are shows. There's a lot are, of live stage vomit in that musical. It's weird. Well, yeah, and blood. <laughs> yeah, and sex. Um, thanks, mom, for paying five hundred bucks to go see this. Um, but I mean, but that being said, musicals are changing a lot. Are they? Like now that Hamilton has been out for a while, the landscape is different because that's what people want. Like people are seeing, people don't want carousel people don't want oklahoma people don't want these like i'm gonna feel good yeah lost my girl but i'm gonna get her back is hamilton like one of the first original musicals in a long time that's actually been on broadway because you go there it's the same shit the billboards are the same pretty much every time i mean i don't go to new york often and i'm not you know Lest you think I know what I'm talking about. Right. I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> with musicals either. So don't, yeah. So don't make me, don't think I'm. But seriously, expert. it's always a revival of something yes. that was famous in the 60s. And you're like, all right, got it. Well, and they do that for plays too. But there are some exceptions where they do have original content. Most of the time, it's a star vehicle. Most Spider-Man. Of the time. Spider-Man the musical. Yeah. The director is like hot shit because she did The Lion King, which I haven't seen. And I haven't seen Spider-Man. I haven't seen much of her work, but I know she is just like the shit. Right. And they will back her up. So like the thing, I mean, with movies too, but you have financiers. Mm -hmm. And so if you have someone like Denzel Washington, going back to Fences, was approached to direct Fences the movie. And he's like, oh shit, I've never read this play. So he read the play and he's like, I want to do the play. So someone was like, all right, well, we'll get the money together because it's Denzel motherfucking right, Washington. Right, whatever he wants. Exactly. You will get the money. And so he did it on stage. It was a huge hit. He won the Tony. Viola Davis won the Tony. Uh, best revival of a play. And now it's a movie. Uh, I mean, it's not that easy at all. But um, <laughs> Bada bang, bada boom. Bada bing, you know. Yeah, Academy Awards. Kiss ass the right people. Yeah, you know, we're going to do what you got to do. Yeah, you want to do a Broadway musical? Okay, yeah. we'll make it a movie too. It's cool. I don't know what the hell that was. <laughs> um, is that your New York? I guess accent? so. Yeah, no, you know, I Jersey, have seen yeah. like Joe Pesci and so many Jersey. things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I've just seen Joe Pesci and Home. It was Home. a really terrible adaptation. Huh. Jersey Boys. 
See, that's what I heard. But Clint Eastwood directing a musical. It just really but the thing is, like, the music's great. I mean, if you listen to the Four Seasons, oh, yeah. it's great music. But I'm like, watching the movie. It, it just seemed like the entire thing was shot on a soundstage. Yeah, the entire thing was done with neutral lighting. Um, it didn't seem to have any major directorial decisions. It seemed like a filmed musical, which was the same problem with the producers. Okay, yeah. Because, I, I mean, after watching that movie, I was like, I really wish I could have seen this on Broadway. Right. Because as a film, it's not a film. Everything was shot as if yeah. it was a proscenium stage. Yeah. Which, and it's It was still too. funny. It was still funny. The performances were still good, but yeah. you could tell that they were playing it to a theater audience, not the camera. Yeah. Well, and like Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick had done the musical for a year at least. Yeah. So, I mean, they were used to that and they hadn't done it for a while. And the director was the original choreographer for it. So she probably also was like, I don't really know film as well. So here we go. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I, I, mm, I, the musical landscape is changing is what you're saying. Yes. I think it is. Um, I could be totally wrong, but I think should like, ask someone who, who who's really who's really into musicals. Uh, Kristen, don't tell me. Well, you already did. Kristen. I'm not gonna say which Kristen. Then <laughs> oh, boom, suck it. Um, well, so I think it's changing in a lot of ways because now a lot of movies are becoming musicals, mm-hmm. which is interesting because now then the musicals are becoming movies. So it's like this weird. Right, like, like they had like Evil Dead the musical, yep. American Psycho the musical. Mm-hmm. Okay, now now that I'm thinking Rocky about it. And, they did Rocky? Yeah, they did Rocky. It didn't really last very long. I'm I wonder why. Surprised. Adrian, I love you. I don't know. Um, see, clearly I'm not going to be in a musical anytime soon. The smash hit. The smash hit. The smash hit. Rocky. Rocky. Yeah. Not like, playing in Philadelphia. Not playing in Philadelphia because people will get pissed. No one would watch that if it was in Philly. Yeah. There's no way. No, absolutely not. No. People like throw their cheesesteaks. Fuck yeah, this shit. Yeah, Fuck that. That's, uh, I had an amazing cheesesteak over Christmas. Dude, break. don't. Oh, I'm so jealous. I had Tex-Mex in Tex, like back when I was in Texas. I miss it so fucking much. And Whataburger, like I know we're not sponsored by anybody, but holy shit. Like, oh. And now I'm gonna have to go a year without that stuff. Uh, oh God! Yeah, this is why it's this is why it's best to treat food as fuel. Yeah, I agree and I disagree. Uh, as I'm looking at like an I'm, Arnold Schwarzenegger poster <laughs> behind you, oh, yeah. <laughs> like right there. Yeah, it keeps me uh, keeps me uh, focused on my goals. Right, like okay, Dark Knight. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's, it's, I should probably craft a more welcoming studio space not one with so many intense images of death and struggle you know what it makes me feel like i know who you are am i intimidating you right now tim not anymore i'm not you used to intimidate you (laughs) me i told you that right yes yeah i was like eh. now i'm like eh, it's fucking robert it's fine i it's like i want to be like i'm working on the guts to be like hey what's up bobby and yeah no that's the worst way to shut me down that's what i'm saying exactly (laughs) like i'm not that comfortable yet but like and i hope you never are yeah yeah (laughs) but one of the professors uh we were at a party and he's charles smith and he's the playwriting professor and he's done stuff like all over the nation very well reputed uh playwright and uh so i was just like fearless at this party i wasn't drunk or anything but i was like hey charles like i'll call you chucky and he said hey you better not i was like okay i won't did he follow it up with a specific threat like i will choke you out no no but he could mm-hmm. like that guy is built like he's Bruh. so he could kill me with the flick of his pinky well it's yeah when you're getting when you're getting to know do you want another beer 
Uh, yeah. yeah let's get another beer. Good. Here, talk into the microphone while I get beers. I don't feel like pausing. So this is we're pausing for station identification. Um, any shout outs? Any shout outs? Let's see. Oh man. Hey everybody. Uh, let's see. Back in Texas. What's up, sissy? What's up, Thomas? Uh, what's up, Paul? What's up, other Thomas? Uh, yeah. Don't know if anybody's listening. Let's see. Hey, Angela, what's up? Uh, I hope you're, I don't know what time it is. So, nah, it's not late. So you're probably up. You're probably watching Netflix because you're a senior and you don't have to do shit. And I'm super jealous. Thank you. Oh, man. Good stuff. Um, let's see. I want to give a shout out to Michael Fassbender, my boy. Fast, I'm a fast hole. It's cool. Is that what they call the fans? That's what I'm calling myself. It's like it's like the cumber bitches for Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, and did you, did you hear about how he's like, oh no, don't call yourself the cumber bitches. Like, don't call 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 them the cumber collective. Right. Yeah, or something like no, that. I said it. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's good sentiment, but you know, but I call myself uh, fast hole. I'm sure there are people that are like, yeah, we're the benders, or I don't know. Have you seen Assassin's Creed yet? I've heard nothing but bad things, and I'm like, my mom has such bad internet at her house that I didn't read the news or look up anything for like two weeks. It was amazing. Then I get back and start seeing all these, you know, horrific headlines of terrible things happening in the world, and and man, see, and that makes me feel bad too because the director and Fassy Boy. And Marion Cotillard, they uh, did uh, Macbeth, and it was incredible. And I'm a big Shakespeare buff, so I'm pretty biased, and I know Macbeth really well. Um, and I know a lot of purists that are like, "That movie sucked. That was so awful. It wasn't. Da, da, that's not at all what Shakespeare wanted." I was like, "I don't give a fuck." Well, what did they did talk to Shakespeare? Did yeah. They, did they well, know, they, did they dug him up. <laughs> They uh, applied some uh, one of those uh, defibrillators or AED things, and they're like, "Hey, shaky, what do you think?" It's like <laughs> preposterous, and then he died. Hey, speaking of Macbeth, yeah, uh, have you ever seen Throne of Blood? No, Kurosawa. You no, need to but see I that, know I need man, to, dude. No, I. I mean, I don't recommend movies a whole lot because. I mean, the list of movies to watch. Like, I I have like three DVDs here that were given to me by colleagues and professors that I need to watch. I just haven't gotten around to it. Let's uh, yeah, a lot let's of find to... time in grad school. Well, the other thing too, and this is the thing about grad school. I, I, I really like that you brought up um, counseling and taking time for mm. that. Mm. Um, thank you for being so honest, of course, in this public forum. Uh, anytime. But I, if I don't go to the gym, mm. if I don't lift at least twice a week. I get depressed. Yeah. And I also found out, I started running when I got here. I never used to run. Mm-hmm. I, I always hated running. And then my favorite UFC fighter is this guy named Nick Diaz, who's a triathlete. Mm-hmm. Oh. So he has the most insane endurance of any fighter in the UFC. So he'll go for five rounds. People are like sucking wind. They're like, <gasps> I can't move. And Nick's just going like, what, bitch? Nothing. What, bitch? Yeah. They're punching him in the face again. So I started running and I realized that I get my ideas while I'm running and while I'm doing manual labor, mm-hmm. I don't get any ideas staring at a computer screen. Nope. So I actually have to go exercise 
in order to do creative work. Yeah. Where other people will ask me, like, how do you have time to go to the gym? We have so much work to do. And I'm like, if I don't go to the gym, that work is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And taking... I mean, when I was an undergrad, it was like I existed on a diet of hot chocolate and soft pretzels and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. all the cheapest alcohol you could get. Mm-hmm. And it was terrible. But now it's like, okay, I'm in con- complete control of my diet mm-hmm. and I'm going to make it consistent as possible yep. and get to the gym and do all these other things in order to be a functioning creative person. Mm-hmm. And I don't, th- a lot of people don't do that. No. You can go, you can redline on one frequency. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure if all you lived was acting, watching movies, going to plays, you would, you'd probably go crazy. My head would explode. I mean, you have other interests besides performing. Nope. I know that we've yes. been talking for yes. a couple hours here about just nothing but acting. But, yeah. I mean, what, what do you do to balance out that part of your life? Well, see. Because you, you're clearly very into it. You're very passionate yeah. about it. You're very good at it. I've seen you in a couple performances. Thank you. And you care to improve. Mm-hmm. And you're humble about it, which I also really like about you. But how do you balance that intense commitment to learning the craft? Well, I'll say right now that you're catching me in a more relaxed mode. Because okay. I'm a... My birth parents both suffered from minor anxiety, minor depression. And uh, so I know that since I came from them... Chances are that happens, and so far it's proving right. Um, but I, so I can get very anxious and very depressed. It feels like, um, and so I do have to work out and do those things too. And very recently, very recently, like the past couple of days, I wasn't able to sleep one night because I was just thinking about acting. Or I was thinking about, okay, what can I do to get me to the next stage? And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It is 3.45 in the fucking morning. I need to sleep. Why? Like, I gotta, I have to turn my brain off sometimes. This is a new revelation for me. It's a duh revelation, but it's, I need that. So now what I'm doing is if I'm eating something, I'm going to focus on eating and not and try my best not to do work while I'm eating. If I'm working out, I'm not going to listen to actor interviews like I did last semester, which was great. Is that what you did while you're doing arms? Uh, <laughs> Wait, when dude, I saw you at the gym, you were listening to acting interviews? Yeah. I yeah. was listening to Belfagor. I don't even know who the fuck that is. Black but, and death metal from yeah. Poland. Yeah, we'll see. And that that's what I need to do more because, like, clearly I'm. Dude, if you need some death metal, to listen to while you're working out. Just let me know. I'll, I, I'll, I'll, yeah, please, I'll help you out. please, because I need all the help I can get. Because I'm getting back to the weight that I started at when I was at when I started grad school. Um. So, so, so wow. Okay. So you weren't taking time away from. No, I wasn't, and oh, that wow. and that was causing me more anxiety. That was causing me more depression because instead of taking a break from it every once in a while, which, you know, grad school, it's hard to find the time to do that, but you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, and like, sometimes it has to be conscious. Like I'm taking a break because I have to, and I know I need to. Whereas before, like I would look up YouTube videos because I was trying to avoid my anxiety or something and just avoiding the work as much as that I know I needed to do because I was just really freaked out about it. So now 
what I'm really going to strive to do is take the time to listen to a funny podcast that has nothing to do with acting, to listen to a podcast where someone is making fart jokes and talking about how like, oh man, I had the worst boner the other day. (laughs) And like, you know, juvenile humor like that. Or I'm going to listen to um, something where someone explores a topic for an hour and talk to experts about it. So I'm going to try everything I can to disconnect from acting. As passionate as I am about it, as much as I love to talk about it, as much as I love to think about it, I need to loosen the reins a little bit to really do it better. Because Mm -hmm. if I'm constantly thinking about it, it's just my anxiety is going to get wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. It's almost going to be like an addiction. We well, get into a loop. Yeah. It's a feedback loop. And you also get the other problem is it's incestuous. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, you, if you're constantly thinking about performance, yeah. then there's no, there, you can, you're not actually engaging with things that can inform a performance. Right. Right. Yeah. So for me, it's like writing. If all like a Quentin Tarantino, perfect mm-hmm. example. I mm-hmm. mean, I would love to have that man's career. Love to be able to do some great movies. But that guy just watches movies constantly. That's what he does. So I used to think that Pulp Fiction was the greatest film ever made. Mm. When I first saw it in high school, I'm like, my God. This is amazing. That's an incredible movie. It is an incredible, and it's still a great movie. Yes. And it was awesome getting to see it at the Athena Cinema downtown. Oh, I'm jealous. Oh, my God. It was great. It was so cool getting to see it on the big screen. Yeah. Um, by the way, if you're listening and you live in Athens, they have some amazing so programs. I, I saw them up at Christmas Carol. Nice. Oh, so much fun. And I donated a can good. And the whole yeah. theater was full of parents and screaming kids, and mm-hmm. I didn't mind. It's the first time I saw a movie in theaters where I didn't mind that all the kids were screaming. Oh, okay. Because I remember what it was like to be a kid and yeah. be excited. It yeah. was actually really cool. So I thought Pulp Fiction was just, my God, phenomenal. It still is phenomenal, but yes. for different reasons. Not in its originality. The structure of it is, is definitely very original. But if you just watch Martin Scorsese films, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Duh. Or if you watch Reservoir Dogs and you start watching some old heist movies, you watch Band Apart, mm-hmm. you know, then you're like, oh, I see where that came from. Yep. Or if you, if you watch a lot of Kung Fu movies or Japanese samurai films. Kill Bill. Kill Bill. And then suddenly I'm like, I can, I'm picking out every film reference. Mm-hmm. And it kind of stripped the veneer of yeah. Tarantino for me because I realized that it was all, he's still a brilliant writer, brilliant yeah. dialogue writer, but he is, he is so... Um, why am I blanking on the word? He's derivative intentionally yeah. to a fault. Yes. So although Christopher Nolan might be referencing Stanley Kubrick yeah. in his film Interstellar, he's not screaming it in your face. No. You know, he's not tra- drawing attention to it. He's making his film and he's using tricks he's learned from other directors to achieve mm-hmm. his vision. I never want to be that guy where they're like, oh, Robert watched a lot of these movies and that's why that makes sense. It's like, yeah. it's like and even the film I'm, I'm gonna hoping to do this semester, no, I am doing it this semester. If it's gonna be good, we'll see. We'll find out. Uh, it is, does not owe anything to any other film, structurally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of different film techniques that I've seen 
mm-hmm. especially by Maya Duren, who is the, I, the biggest crush on her, even though she's, she's dead. Maya Duren, look her up, experimental I filmmaker from the 1940s, brilliant, brilliant artist. Uh, I got to thank Natasha Madoff for, for recommending her to me. But it's not like I'm going out to make a surrealist film in the vein of Salvador Dali or Jodorowsky. I'm making a film that came out of my unconscious that I wrote Mm -hmm. through free association with all these images that came to me while I was writing, while I was running, while I was lifting, put them in screenplay format. That's my, that's my project. So what kills me though, is that I spent so much time trying to write screenplays that were combinations of other movies I watched. And then I realized, oh, wait, I'm Robert Cathern. I'm not Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I'm not Robert Rodriguez. I'm Robert Cathern. Yeah. If I'm going to be an artist, if I'm going to express myself authentically, like an actor will express themselves authentically on stage, mm-hmm. it can't be based on someone else's work. Right. You know what I mean? Like, if I yeah. adapted something, if I adapted someone else's, like, writing... It, it would be my creative talent. This is really talking myself up right now, That's, using the word talent. Yeah, go for uh, it. <laughs> would be applied to someone else's vision. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd have my own aesthetic applied to someone else's story. But, I mean, the one that I wrote for this semester is like, it's it's really deep. It's very personal. It's very intense. And you could maybe compare it to some other filmmakers, but... If I do it the way I want to, it is going to stand alone as a Robert Catherine film. And yeah. that is what I'm going for. Gotcha. Which is funny because people ask me what my favorite movie is. And I generally just go, oh, you know, like Fight Club mm-hmm. or Gladiator. Mm-hmm. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, like the movies that I love watching are yeah. not the movies I want to direct. Yeah. Which is very strange. Yeah. Like I'm a sucker for stupid action movies. And also like historical epics. And, and the same, you know, Braveheart the Patriot, you know, a lot of Mel Gibson. Yeah, I was about to say a lot of Mad Max. Um, no, but like Gladiator and stuff like that. Like it's like the hero journey of like the yeah. man who just wants to have a peaceful life, but is drawn into combat. Mm-hmm. Every Bruce Lee movie is that way. So I'm a real sucker for that type of storytelling, but I don't want to do that film. Yeah. And that's when I realized that I wanted to be a, that I was, I was a filmmaker mm-hmm. is that it's not about copy, copying someone else. It's about having an idea in my head that I need to get out. I can't paint. I can't draw. Mm-hmm. I'm not a musician. It has to be film. Yeah. So it's almost like this weird compulsion. Mm-hmm. Like I've got to get this image out of here. I'm yeah. pointing at my brain right now. Yeah. And and get it out. I have to get it on film. I have to be able to show that. And that's the terrifying thing. Oh yeah. Is doing the project and then being like, okay, Mr. Projectionist. Here you go. Push play. I that is where I'm naked. Yeah. As a filmmaker, yeah. is when I'm screening it for the first time. We screened a project in class, a little self-portrait project. Mm-hmm. And before I pushed play, my heart was racing. It is my nine colleagues and one professor, and I was freaking out. These are people I see every day, and I was like, <sighs> completely ridiculous. It, well, it's not ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. But you know what I mean? Like yeah. the act, the actual filmmaking process is just work. Mm-hmm. You get out there and you just work. Yeah. And another really cool thing that Natasha told me is that creativity is a process of discovery, not construction. 
Yeah, I like that. Isn't that good? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was talking to a, a friend of mine who does, he's a, he's a sculptor, but he also does, he does furniture, he does custom furniture for people. Mm-hmm. So he has his own artwork. He does, you know, presents it in galleries and whatnot. And then he does installations that are on commission. And I asked him if it was difficult for him to do things on commission. And his response was, is that when you do something completely creative, that's entirely for you, that you might sell, whatever, but it's a completely original idea. The process of discovery is there throughout the entire process. You, you get the idea in your head, you see some raw materials, how do I fashion this? It's constantly problem solving and discovering things. With a commission, you are given all these things and then the discovery part of it is in how you make it work for you as a yeah. craftsman. What's your hook in? Yeah. Right. So so he said he didn't have a problem with commission work because it pays better, for one. Yeah. <laughs> it's a way to make a living. But you can find discoveries even in that strict framework. Hmm. So now I'm thinking more and more that, like, is all creativity just discovery? I mean, if you're a musician and you play one note and then suddenly another note, you're like, oh, that would sound good if this note came after it. Hmm. You know, you didn't craft that I mean you might mm. if you write formulaically yeah but I think that if you're really trying to find something new you're just you're just looking in different places and it kind of comes to you and like and when, like I was telling you when I'm running I'm listening to metal I'm mm-hmm. running and then suddenly bam something will come into my head that was completely unmotivated and then I and then I write that down and I yeah. think about it and I like meditate on that and I see where that leads I see what yeah. that image I, I, then I do a little bit of research on what that image represents to people in general like different archetypes, things like that. But it is like exhilarating and terrifying and crushingly miserable and joyous at the same time. So why the fuck do we do this? I don't know, man. (laughs) I've been thinking about it and it's just, it's, there's, you just have to. That's, it's, I. Do you have that feeling of like, just, I have to do this? God, it's, what I tell people and I'm, I joke, but it's not really a joke because it's pretty serious. It's like, I'm, I love it. I love what I do. But I'm not doing it because I love it anymore. I'm doing it because I'm addicted to it. Yeah. That's what it is. I'm addicted to something. I don't even know what I'm addicted to, but it's something that has to do with this stuff. I'm addicted to talking about it. I'm addicted and that's why I have to like check myself and be like, "Okay, I have to Listen to this podcast where somebody's talking about premature ejaculation. I have to, you know. Is there a podcast about that? I'm have sure there one? is. I'm <laughs> sure there is. But uh, I, I can't. I can't shout out anybody. I'm sorry if you have a very niche market for premature ejaculation and you're listening to this. Um, but see, and I, based on what you say about creativity, I agree and I disagree. Okay. I agree that. For the record, that was not my idea. I'm merely repeating someone else's that I agree with. Go ahead. Right. Okay. Well. I can't take credit for that awesome statement. Right. So now you're just backing (laughs) off of it. Okay. No, please. No, continue though. No. Yeah. So uh, I think that creativity is the structuring the chaos that is life. It's about. I feel this way and I have to find a way to form it 
in order to so it's like my internal goo feels this way about something i i see the air and it makes me feel this way how can i convey that to your inner goo i so i structure it in a way and i package it to you in a form i think so i was watching a youtube video as i want to do um about will i think it was vsauce and he was talking about how will we run out of music of like note combination and things like that and he said oh we already have so um because if you think about all the different notes that are in it you have a through g flat or something like like what a sharp to g flat that's as far as it goes that's all you have those are all the paint the paints that you have when you're composing music well there are only a handful of things combinations of those that sound good like you can't i don't i don't know music as well as i used to and i didn't know music very well back then but there are some notes that if you put them together they will not sound good right so it's called death metal <laughs> there you go <laughs> now it's all coming clear um <laughs> but there's some the so the notes don't sound good together so you're not going to like put them in a sequential order and you're not going to try and make it work um and there are some people that do like do that on purpose to get an elicit a response or something um but there's no originality in music anymore because rock music we're like people are stealing from rock music from the 50s which is stealing from like the very beginning blues music mm -hmm. and that's even stealing from this and stealing from jazz and stealing from that and jazz is riffing off of classical music and classical music is riffing off of uh cavemen pounding stones together i mean we're stealing art is stealing itself what's happening now and we're in an age where I feel like people are taking something and twisting it just a degree. Mm -hmm. So you have With a comfortable level of familiarity. So it's palatable. Yeah. But there's also like Tucker and Dale versus evil, um, which is a, I think it's a great movie and it's really fun. And it's, um, but it's just taking it's that Alan Tudyk. It is. Okay. And I love uh, that guy's so good. Juilliard also. Is he from Juilliard? Juilliard. Wow. There you yeah. go. And he is from El Paso, Texas. So Your backyard. Yeah. Well, <laughs> totally opposite side of the state. But yes, <laughs> Texas is my whole backyard. Right. Thank you for reminding mm -hmm. the uh, listening audience. Um, so Tucker and Dale. So Tucker and Dale it's versus It's a horror movie, Evil. but it's a comedy. Well, it's a horror comedy. Because it's um, about these kids who go on a trip and they get attacked by killer hillbillies. But it's told from the hillbillies' point of view. And so it's just taking that idea and twisting it. So you're seeing it through the hillbillies' point of view, and they're not trying to kill them. They're just things are going wrong and they're being misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. So it's taking what we know and kind of turning it up, turning it to a different degree and seeing it from a different thing. So that's, and I think that we're in that age where we want to see that, or where most audiences want to see that. We want to see the anti-hero. We want to see a little more grit. We want to see a little more depth to our characters. 
So, and that's going back to the musical mm-hmm. thing. We don't want to see the like big showy musical. I love everything. Everybody loves me. Like we want to see Evil Dead the musical. We want to see the uh, we want to see Walter White become Heisenberg. You know, um, so and you can say that those are super original. They're really not though. It also goes in waves though. I think yes. Because um, are you familiar with the terms, they're like alchemical terms, solvay and coagula? Not very well at all. So solvay is the process of dissolving something, of breaking it apart. Okay. okay. So you could you could call that postmodernism, mm-hmm. where you're breaking everything down into its components. Yeah. Um, and postmodernism has been in vogue for a long time, but I think it's slowly starting to kind of fade a little bit because it's tedious. Yeah. If you're going to break everything down, you can't enjoy anything even in and of itself. It just be, it's it's to me it's tedious. Yeah. So you get something like Family Guy is very that's very postmodern. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's constantly commenting on itself, commenting on pop culture, which has its place. Yeah. Now, coagula is when you combine things for something new. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's when you get these kind of revivals mm. where you get um like in music, you could sit well, in my music. Um there was this one you have like technical death metal which is breaking down metal into like the most complex arrangements and virtuoso playing possible where you're just marveling at the technical virtuosity mm. of these of these musicians you're like how the hell did they play that part and put it next to this and i remember getting really into it like there was a band called decapitated mm. that is <laughs> I, mean, I, I, yeah. I, I love how you're taking all this, Tim. It's a band called Decapitated. Decapitated. Ta- there's maggot larva, and it's, you know. I saw them live. I saw Decapitated live. It's an amazing show. Uh-huh. Listen to the music, and it is impressive. It is yeah. just impressive. Yeah. But the more I listened to it, I was like, I I can't really like headbang to this. This mm. isn't music I listen to when I'm driving. I can't really run to this. I can't shout along with it because even. You know, Cannibal Corpse, you can shout along with it because it's catchy. They have like some catchy hooks. And I realize that that is what Solve is. That's mm. like you're breaking everything down and, and showing it, showing all the parts and all the move, all the gears, yeah. all the moving parts. But then you get a band like, um, uh, like Cannibal Corpse, mm. I'm going to say, where they have a formula. For death metal, yeah, they have bridge, chorus, verse, much like a traditional rock song, yeah. and they are very good musicians. But they always have a hook. The songs are always about death, mm-hmm. and you can headbang to it and have a good time and yeah. get in that mosh pit and know exactly when everyone's going to pump your fist at the same time. Yeah. So there's a there's a weird kind of like how much of that deconstructivism do we want, and how much do we want? Oklahoma the musical yeah yeah you know like do we really need to break everything down to the point where we can't appreciate it in and of itself anymore I don't know which is why which is why I mentioned Braveheart and Gladiator earlier it's the same story yeah Braveheart and Gladiator are the same story different cultural context Mm -hmm. different historical context same story yeah but now I feel like nowadays like yeah that that definitely for its time and even nowadays people watch that that's uh people want to see this guy that can rally the troops he's unafraid all this stuff i'm gonna kill the fucking enemy i'm gonna decapitate all of them great awesome nowadays we're seeing liam neeson go through something similar liam neeson 
even though he's a big guy and he was a boxer back in the day. Was he a boxer, really? Yeah. That's yeah, not yeah, surprising yeah. me at all. No, he's a huge guy and his like hands are like You know who mitts. else is a boxer? Huh. Gene Hackman. No shit. Gene Hackman shows up to amateur fights in New Mexico, just walks in and sits down, and people are like I was listening to a podcast that this this huh. fighter had, and he says he's like, Oh guess guess who came to that fight the other night? It's like, who's like Gene Hackman? in the front fucking row really yeah he was a boxer he's totally into it he was asking us questions afterwards he shook hands with the fighters I'm like what that's awesome anyway so Liam Neeson yeah so you have Liam Neeson in the Taken movies Mm -hmm. and now you have this actor who's known more for his dramatic roles Schindler Oscar Schindler yeah Um, I mean and he does like rom-coms like Love Actually and he's doing these things God, I hate that movie. I do too. But, you know, he did it. How many times has your girlfriend made you watch that? Uh, Zero, because she hates it too, and that's why we're still together. Oh, wow. Uh, I know. She's a keeper, Tim. She's a keeper. She's a keeper. She's she's a keeper. Um, And so you have someone like him who's done those type of movies, and now he's doing these action movies. So, like, you have The Expendables. You have those kind of movies with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but those are more under the radar now. You're not getting those as much because I think they're the nostalgia people, trips, though. They're nostalgia. There trips. are other action movies that do what those movies did in the '80s, yeah, better, yeah, without the name recognition. Right. There's a huge underground action movie market. Doesn't have any big name stars that is doing it better than Expendables did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's well. And so it's like you don't want those type of action heroes anymore. You want you want Creed versus Rocky nowadays because you're showing Creed, you're showing uh, Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, going through shit. I mean, and yeah, you're watching Rocky go through that stuff too. But you're watching like Michael B. Jordan go through these really like you know racial things and the i mean it's it's just you know it's like it's more in depth and you're and we're also so it's like the combination of that and a nostalgia age of what we're talking about too once again familiarity new twist exactly but so you're saying that we want today we want a little bit more grit and a little bit more ambiguity i think with our heroes is that what you're i think so like you want to see uh you want to see characters that are flawed versus uh maximus who is the perfect man the perfect man who's like (laughs) i'm doing this for my family and like nowadays we want to see him go through that but maybe like starting to fall in love with this with the emperor's sister Mm -hmm. and like falling in love with her but no i have to do this for my family people might want to see that more nowadays right people want to see a flawed hero who Despite everything, despite his internal conflict, despite all the external conflict, he's shows through. And because, um, like, well, okay, perfect example, I think. Uh, Star Wars Force Awakens. Ugh. See, I liked it more Ugh. than purists like you, I guess. Um, Sorry about it. No, it's cool. I mean, it wasn't the best movie, but, you know, okay. I had a good time. It's better than the prequels. I will give you that. Okay, then. Will so that. we're so we're on the same page will, on that. Yes. Um, so you watch that, and you can't have a Darth Vader again. Like you can't have Darth Vader just pure badass evil. You can't do that anymore. I don't think. 
you have to have Kylo Ren who is struggling with the dark side and with the light side. And I think that's what you have to have nowadays. You have to see the humanity in it. You can't, uh, I don't think it's black. I don't think people want black and white anymore. You want to kind of see the Joker, Heath Ledger's Joker. I was just going to bring that up. Like that, I mean, that's like good versus evil, but you watch Christian Bale in that, he's tormented the entire time because of the Joker. So, but, so the issue then is what character are we identifying with? That's because a question. at no point does anyone identify with the Joker. Right. Right? That's not the point. No. But you can root for him in a weird way of like, oh my God, what is he going to do next? Mm-hmm. Not like I'm following his emotional arc because he doesn't have one. Right. But um, do you do you think that Kylo Ren's emotional arc was was um, good? Not yet. Come on, it's the first of the trilogy. <laughs> Come on. So, but I, okay, I, yeah. But okay, so what? What kind of movies do you want to see? Do you like that part of it? Do you, are there any movies that you unabashedly love because they're simple and they hit those buttons? Oh yeah. Uh, ooh, ooh. I hesitate to use the term guilty pleasure, but yeah. you know, like like the other day, I watched um, I watched Sin City. Okay, yeah. And no one is gonna call that great storytelling. No, but that's a fun movie. It's fun. Yeah, it's Bruce Willis in probably in one of his. I don't know. I haven't seen any Bruce Willis movies lately, but you know, true badass. Yeah, it's comic books. You know, there are hot girls in it. Yeah. It's got Rosario Dawson. And, like, nothing. Oh yeah. God. I mean, come on. Rosario. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, stand in line, pal. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, and you know what those mo- those movies I enjoy are more nostalgia than anything. So like you those. loved them back in the day and you return yes. to them now. And, and I'm like, okay, I know why I love them. And I love them because I used to love them now uh like back to the future that's a great movie i i you know i don't think it's a great movie i don't think it's i think it's a little overrated i still love it Mm -hmm. and will watch it till the day i fucking die but i don't think it's a great movie i think i watch that i think why don't i watch this more often yeah i always think wow i forgot how good this was yeah it's just it's a fun movie there's not like anything deep to it at all but i think it's a fun movie Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, you could probably find depth in it, and I'm just like being ignorant of it. Great Scott, great Scott, 1.21 <laughs> gigawatts. Oh my god, my girlfriend and I quote that back and forth. Like we have quoted the entire movie at this point. See, I haven't seen Back to the Future two or three. Well, you, I hear that I heard the sequel's actually pretty good, but I haven't seen the it. sequel's good. And then you have to see the third one if you see the sequel. Okay. Is the thing because it's one of those like Empire Strikes Back where it like leaves on the cliffhanger, and you have to see the third one. Mm-hmm. Um, but mo- like what I find with those kind of simplistic movies that I can turn my brain off, it has to be something nostalgic like that. It can't be uh, something that is new for the most part for me anymore because I just get fed up with it a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Um, I will say the new Mission Impossible movies I've enjoyed a lot. Okay. Those are pretty fluffy. Uh, like Ghost Protocol okay did i see ghost protocol i saw that is in that the movie. most recent one no it's the um it's the fourth one right it's the fourth one it's directed oh, by brad bird i did see that one oh, you know you know so why good. i saw that one this is actually kind of funny i saw that because 
I went to the IMAX theater uh-huh. in uh, at the Franklin Institute in Philly, mm. and I I walked in because there was going to be a ten minute Dark Knight Rises yep. preview in front of it on the IMAX screen. Yeah, and I walk in the front door and I see this you know giant statue of Ben Franklin, and I walk up to the ticket counter and there's no one there, mm. and there's no one at the entrance to the theater. So I just walked in. So Tom Cruise did not get your 25 bucks or whatever the fuck. Got a seat in the mm-hmm. exact middle, watched the introduction to The Dark Knight Rises, and I was like, ah, I'm already here. Might as well watch the rest yeah. of the movie. And I did. I haven't seen it since. Okay. Well, I've seen it twice. Okay. Like once in the movie theaters, one at home. I guess what I, I just really want a really well-made movie. So, you know, who doesn't? But I, I can't go to a Transformers movie and be like, I'm going to turn my brain. Because they they're are shit. shit. The dialogue. They're shit. Ugh, okay. Like, this is funny just... because from an acting perspective, yeah. Okay. From a, from a, from a dialogue perspective, screener perspective, it's terrible. Yeah. From a filmmaking perspective, it's terrible. Yeah. If you just throw, you know, explosions and, and jittery camera at the audience, it's... Perfect example. Have you seen Miracle Mile? It was a film done in the eighties. No, about like a nuclear, like Armageddon, essentially. But it's a love story. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend checking it out. Steve DeJarnett. He used to teach at OU. Actually, oh, cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so he does this movie about this couple, and they, it's like their first date, mm. and they fall in love. But they fall in love on the night that like all the nukes get launched. So um, half the movie is like the man trying to find the girl, make sure she's okay. She doesn't know what's going on. How are we going to survive? What are we going to do? And it has like this downer ending mm-hmm. and it's terrible. But the film is so well crafted. Every camera angle means something. Mm. Every composition, every frame could be a poster. Yeah. The lighting is beautiful. The blocking is great. The casting is flawless. And uh, I got to meet him. And we were talking about it, and, he, and I said, so how did you do it? And he goes, well, I, I'd written a script, and I had 10 years before I got the money to make it. Uh-huh. So I spent 10 years figuring out every shot, storyboarding the entire thing, mm. doing so much pre-production that the movie was essentially already made in all these images. Yeah. And then when it came time to film, I was good to go. I just did it. Yeah. It was, why would you make a film like Jason Bourne that you could shoot with a three-man crew, yeah. Why does that cost twenty-five million dollars? Yeah, or, yeah. Like, or however many millions it costs, like probably yeah. was like closer to a hundred. Probably shaky camera. You can shoot it with you know a three-man crew. Why are we spending that much money on a film? It's completely pointless. Yeah, we shouldn't. So now, after watching something like Miracle Mile, and watching like the Born Identity movies, you can see the first Born Identity was actually really well crafted. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Born Supremacy gets a little jittery. Born Ultimatum. I can kind of follow what's going on, but it's a little mm-hmm. crazy. So I have way more appreciation for the craft yeah. of directing the audience's eye. Mm-hmm. And really good directors can do that yes. in a way that has an emotional resonance with the lighting. Mm-hmm. Like, have you ever seen Apocalypse Now? Not yet, but I, oh, it's, man. I have the movie. I just it's haven't a, seen it's it. A, it's, an, it's one of those things you turn the phone off, you shut the blinds, yeah, yeah. you get yourself a beer or eight, Mm-hmm. Yeah. You sit down just, and you and you watch it, and every shot in that movie is a 
masterclass in cinematography. It is gorgeous. So one of my favorite movies ever of all time, Francis Ford Coppola, The Conversation. Mm. Jesus Christ. My God, you think you know how to make movie. a movie? You use the same audio track for different you're trying to get a different tone and you use the same audio track to do that? What? You do this before Watergate? What? You do this in between one of the most successful trilogies of all time? What? Yeah. See, and like and you do it with an understated performance by Gene Hackman. Oh my god, it's that good. movie Robert is so Duvall underrated. Fucked me up. He was in yeah. it for the three minutes. Yeah, three and minutes. Harrison Ford's in it for what? Harrison in maybe it for five, and maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. But and John Cazal. Yeah. Good night. Like Jesus. You know, Christ. we got to watch that in my sound design class. <sighs> so John Butler. Who who was one of uh, Fred Rogers? I think he was the original Mister Rogers Neighborhood sound designer. Uh-huh. Teaches sound design at Ohio University. Well, that's good to know. And they so the Peterson Sound Studio is what they have in um, the Union Street building. Uh-huh. It was originally in Cleveland. So when all the the studios in L.A. or New York would be completely booked for dialogue replacement or voiceover, they go to Cleveland to the Peterson Sound Studio. It's huh. so like Charlton Heston, a bunch of different people. Uh, John Butler told us about a bunch of them. So when they moved to this new location, they just transplanted the Peterson Sound Studio. They moved like all the equipment, moved huh. a bunch of speakers. So we have these like five foot tall analog speakers. Okay, so we go into the Peterson Sound Studio, and there was a bunch of equipment that wasn't working. So he said, "I I wish I could do this man's voice." Anyway, he played the conversation for us on this like analog equipment from the '60s, and we got to see it on the big screen in my sound design class. And I had watched it on my little 12 by 12 VHS combo Mm -hmm, TV back mm -hmm. in the day, and was like, "Wow, Gene Hackman's really good." But it wasn't until I saw it on the big screen with professional analog audio equipment that you could hear every sound design decision. Mm -hmm. That was wild. See, and I like how you said that because that's the word I've been looking for. I get so much joy out of seeing what people's decisions are. So anyway, but yeah, the conversation, I like, I saw that they were playing at the Athena. I was so pissed that I couldn't see it for whatever fucking reason. But that's one of my favorite movies, and I've only seen it once. And that's a bold claim because I've seen a lot of movies, and I'm going to see it again. But shit. And then, um, like, uh, 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 Babel. See, I didn't uh, like Babel. You didn't like Babel? Oh, dude, I loved it. I, in, in Iratu, right? Yep. I loved Amoris Sparrows, mm-hmm. loved 21 Grams. Mm-hmm. I just saw The Revenant last week. <sighs> I yeah. loved it. Oh, I couldn't stand it. Really? It was beautiful, like filmmaking standard. Oh man, beautiful. Most of the acting, fantastic. Story wise, who gives a shit? Okay, I give a shit, and I'll All tell right. you why. All right. <laughs> because there is something about the struggle for survival and the primal need to fight that I have felt very deeply in recent years mm. and watching DiCaprio go through that and survive and just yeah. how brutal it is like that. 
I mean, I was talking to my mom about it. My mom's like, you know, I saw it once and you know, it was good. And, and, and me and your brother thought, you know, Robert would love this. And, uh, and I, I did, obviously. And, you know, Tom Hardy is. is Tom Hardy. Just, I'm such a huge could, fan of his. You could give him a fucking newspaper and he will get an Oscar. Like the fact that he's only been nominated once. What was he nominated him. for? The Revenant. Oh, really? Yeah. Who won? Uh, oh, Mark Rylance for Bridge of Spies. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, I didn't either. I heard nothing but not so good things. So, well, but I watched that movie, and the almost I think almost the entire movie was done with like super wide angle lenses. Yeah, yeah, with natural light. Yeah, which is difficult. Oh, yeah, that's really tough. I mean, that there's a technical achievement on one level. Yeah, but that like savage, primal survival, revenge, brutality refusal to give up yeah man versus nature this is why i'm a big Werner herzog fan because uh, yeah. it's the same kind of thing but like that was almost like if Werner herzog took a little bit more time setting up his camera shots it would look like the revenant i don't think he'd hire leonardo dicaprio though no but i was the whole film i was just like Okay, I'll watch it again. <laughs> you don't have to, please. No, I, I, I wanted to go now. outside and chop wood. That's what I wanted to do after that movie was over. <laughs> I wanted to cut open a horse and stay in it like a tauntaun. I don't know why I'm doing that voice <laughs> for you, but <laughs> clearly. You don't have to go watch The Revenant again. I will. Please. You don't I, have to. I just, I'm, I'm a fan of Inuratu is the thing. So maybe I was just like, oh, it's getting all this Oscar buzz. Leo's going to win for it because, you know... He's due and all that shit and you know whatever, but uh, which and I'm like okay, Roger Deakins has 13 Oscar nominations and he hasn't won one, and Amy Adams has been nominated six times and she hasn't won yet. So was it Emmanuel Lubezki? Lubezki was he yeah. the Revenant? Yes. How is Deakins not not won? He's that's what I'm saying, man. God, like, okay, good. Lubezki is great. Don't get me wrong. Like, Children of Men, fuck yeah. Fucking Birdman, fuck yeah. Gravity, fuck yeah. The Revenant, fuck yeah. But don't turn this guy into Meryl Streep of cinematography, please. I love Meryl. Don't get me wrong. But I, I you're get allowed into, to not like Meryl. No, I do like her. Okay, though, is the thing. I love her work. Sophie's Choice is amazing. It is one of the best acting performances I've ever seen. Stop how do you, nominating. How do you feel her. about Mamma Mia? I think it's a masterpiece. I've never seen it, so I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I think that Amanda Seyfried is. Was she a in gem. that? You know what I watched that was really, really, really bad. What's that? Red Riding Hood. See, I uh, see, I try to avoid movies that I know. I'm like, nah. I I had to write a paper for my film studies class, and oh, it had to no. be a goth or horror film directed by a woman, and it was an mm. it was a ten page paper. And I figured, I don't want to watch a movie that we watched in class, mm-hmm. and goth horror films directed by women are hard to come by. And then I was yeah. like, oh wait. There was that Red Riding Hood movie mm-hmm. that was directed by Catherine Hardwick, who did the first Twilight. Yes. Got it. It has Gary Oldman in it. Huh. Yeah. It has werewolves. Interesting. It has Julie Christie. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's it. check it out. Bad idea. Oof. It was horrendous in Oof. every sense of the word. In fact, that movie was worth watching only for how not to make movies. Oh, okay. It was that bad. Even Gary Gary Oldman was the only good part of that movie. 
And who did he play in that? The big bad wolf? He, no, he played the uh, like the wolf hunter. Oh, okay, okay. But it was just, it was really bad. Anyway, every now and then you have to watch a bad movie to remind you. Oh, that's probably my guilty pleasure. Let's, <laughs> like I think we talked about that a little bit maybe before. Like the room, uh, Samurai Cop. Oh, Samurai Cop. I never heard of that. Oh, my friend, you better come over. We're gonna watch it. We'll drink and we'll have a good time laughing right. at it. Like it's great. Yeah, it's. Have you seen Black Dynamite? No, that oh sounds God. awesome though. Black Dynamite with Michael Jai White is, is one of my favorite films. Okay, it's an intentionally bad movie. Oh, it's a seventies black exploitation kung fu satire. Uh huh. But it is hysterical. See, and like I like those movies that are not trying to be bad, but they're terrible. They are terrible because anyway. they're terrifying in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, like The Room had every intention of being the tragic masterpiece of the 21st century nope not a bit um samurai cop was trying i've never even heard of samurai oh my friend what what year did that come out when when 1990 wow and so this is like coming out of big hair like lethal weapon has been out okay so they're trying to recreate lethal weapon and they're trying to make this guy who has the same Mel Gibson hair. And uh, they're trying to make him like this kind of like a charming, like kind of like, ah, I get all the ladies. I can say what I want to him. And he's just gross. <laughs> like there's a part when uh, someone's like, hey, I guess I'll meet you. Uh, or he's, they're talking stuff. He's like, yeah, okay. Well, you keep an eye out for him. And he's like, yeah, I will. So he's, ta- okay, let me back up. So he's talking to a female helicopter pilot. And so they're looking out for the bad guy. And uh, so she's like, hey, good job, Joe. Look out for the rest of the bad guys, and we'll uh, we'll catch them. She said, okay. And so he's like, yeah, okay, I will. And I guess you keep it warm for me, okay? I'll see you back in my place. And it's like, oh. 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 And I'm trying to be Martin Riggs. Trying to do something charming that's just not... And so it just comes off as gross. And the director is an Iranian director. So there, and there's like so much that I could talk about. Like the fact that they. Do you have this on DVD or is it like VHS? Oh, hell yeah, on DVD. (laughs) As soon as I saw it at a movie theater in Houston, the River Oaks Movie Theater, which does every Friday and Saturday night, they do um, different movies that aren't in theaters, but they just do like Fargo sometimes. Mm -hmm. They do the Rocky Horror thing. Mm Uh, and then every month, or I don't know if they do it anymore, but they do a screening of the room where you like throw the spoons at the screen and all that fun, okay. amazing time. I still haven't seen the room, but I've heard a lot. Oh my about god, it. dude! I have both I've of these told movies. You, Tim, I am not a voracious film watcher. Well, good thing we're friends. All right, we'll have a but movie night. Yeah, we'll have a yeah. date night. It'll be great. I think right. We'll talk to Angela. Oh. Be like Angela. Like, hey, give me my pass. Okay? Boyfriend pass. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so in Samurai Cop, the director clearly fast forwards for fight scenes, for chase scenes, because they're probably going like mm, 20 miles per hour max going through these scenes, mm-hmm. but he fast forwards it to make it look like they're going 70 <laughs> through these like crowded streets. <laughs> um, and then he does some, most of the dubbing for some of the voices like the ADR. Mm-hmm. Um, the main guy, the samurai cop of samurai cop 
he does so he films what he thinks is his portion and the director's like great awesome it's in the can we're ready to go like don't need anything more from you maybe we'll do some adr stuff fine so the guy's like get me the fuck out of here so he cuts his hair everything and he's like get me away from this i'm going on more auditions two weeks later the director's like all right baby let's get back into it and he's like what what and the director's like yeah no man we're ready to go we're ready for the second half he's like second half you said i was done he's like no 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 you're done for the first half he's like what the fuck i cut my hair and so the director's like oh shit oh it's okay i got an idea (laughs) so he puts on a wig and it's not just like a standard like guy wig i don't know like a long wig it's a female wig that you give to like a chemotherapy patient to make him feel better so there's some shots where you see the guy with his natural hair and he's like waving around and it's like flowing in the breeze and stuff and then there's another scene in the or shot in the same scene where he clearly has a wig on and there's a part in the movie when the wig comes off it's for like half a second but it's there it's i gotta i gotta see it fantastic i gotta see it tim oh man we gotta set that up Yes. When do you, you start rehearsal? Ah, it's going to be tough. Tomorrow. It's going to be tough. I mean, I am we'll done. Find a time. We'll find a time. I'm done, though, uh, in March. So I'll see you in a couple months. <laughs> so I'll see you then. Yeah. We'll do another podcast. We'll talk about the movie. One That'll be great. Movie. And we'll, we'll avoid talking about acting at all. I don't know. Good luck with that. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts? Um, live, laugh, love. Live, laugh, love. Hashtag blessed. Um, <laughs> no, I just... I, okay, well, I will say if you do want to pursue an artistic career, uh, learn to take care of yourself first. And uh, like health wise, in every shape, form, mentally, emotionally, physically, everything. Um, yeah, just take it because that's where you, that is what helps you get to the dark places easier than trying to wallow in it. Um, and I'm a big believer in that now and that's why I'm going to therapy. That's why I'm trying to hit the gym more. Um, that's why I'm always working on myself even while I'm doing this acting stuff. So I think it's important. I think people get this idea of artistic torture like torturing yourself for your art. And I don't think it has to be that way. Um, there's an author, Elizabeth shit, Gilbert, Elizabeth Gilbert. And she talks about this a lot and she has a podcast and she has a book. Fuck. I don't remember what it's called. Elizabeth um, Gilbert. Let me Elizabeth look it up Gilbert. And she wrote eat, pray, love. Oh, God. Um, I know, I know, I know. God damn. I know, I'm bringing that up, and you just want to listen to your metal shit, and <laughs> your cannibal corpse. Um, Big Magic. Okay. Her book, Big Magic, it's really cheesy. It's really, like, hippy-dippy, feel-good shit, but it's transformed everything for me. So I would say take care of yourself so that you can do your stuff without 
Yeah. So. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Absolutely. Thank I'm you. really looking forward to Glengarry Glen Ross. Hell yeah. Keep an eye on the Ohio University. What is there a website or something like that? There's a, a College of Fine Arts website. And okay. if you search for that and then theater, there's a full calendar that you can check out. Nice. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Why are God you on Twitter? Damn you. How's it going? I, well, Do you want people to follow hey, you? Hey, Do you want some hey followers? Diggs is following me. He was in is the original really? cast of Rent. What's, Boom. What's, your, mm. what's your Twitter? It's at capital Tim, capital A Ashby 3, I think. Yeah. So capital T I M, capital A S H B Y 3. Numeral 3. Yes. And if you want to be cool like Tay Diggs, follow tim ashby yeah and instagram i got that i got everything man okay uh, okay only if you want people to follow you yeah i do yeah because yeah. then that 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 is how i get sitcoms and right. stuff uh but my uh instagram handle is at kalamazoo parakeet c-a-l-l-a-m-a-z-o-o parakeet um yeah Look that stuff up. Yeah. I quote, I post a lot of like, yeah, feel good, do good, and like all that stuff. So I'm, I'm really brief, motivational blurbs. You know, it's just fun. That's that's great. It, it helps me with the anxiety and depression stuff. So nice. You know, keep it up. All right, that's it for episode one. We'll see you next time.